Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Oteil Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, Oteil Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival alongside an incredible group of musicians for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between, and scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault to learn more. That's rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Today I want to tell you about a brand new podcast that I'm really loving. It's called 27 Club, and it's hosted by Jake Brennan, the creator and host of Disgraceland, and iHeartRadio's 2020 Best Music Podcast winner. 27 Club tells the stories of musical icons who all died at the age of 27, and season one is all about Jimi Hendrix. Jimi died mysteriously at the age of 27, and he lived his life unlike any other. He was arguably the greatest rock and roll guitar player of all time, and he was a busy guy. Busy getting kidnapped, busy running from the mafia, busy stealing trucks with Neil Young, trying to get to Woodstock on time. Jimmy got busy with himself and got himself kicked out of the army. He was fired by Little Richard, arrested by Seattle cops and Canadian Mounties, doused with LSD by his manager on stage in front of thousands, and haunted by the ghost of the Rolling Stones' Brian Jones. All of these Jimi Hendrix stories and more are coming at you in Season 1 of The 27 Club. 
If you like Disgraceland, Jimi Hendrix, Larger Than Life rock stars, or just plain old mystery and drama, then you're going to love The 27 Club. Subscribe to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. So I was thinking about the time, it was in 2016, we were coming back from Deer Creek, and it was probably like one in the morning, and you were playing Fish songs, I think you were playing all covers that Fish was playing, and I remember you played the uh, the Terrapin performance from August 9th, 1998. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah I remember uh, trying very hard to stay awake driving back from <laughs> Noblesville, Indiana in the in the wee hours. Yeah, you were driving and I was I was riding shotgun and it's always the duty of the shotgun person to keep the driver awake with conversation, but I was I was bailing. I was like I, I was not being a good co-pilot. So <laughs> like you were having to do the co-pilot and the pilot duties by like you're playing DJ and you were doing most of the talking. And yeah, you were playing the Terrapin, and I remember you, I don't, in my memory you were getting emotional about it. I don't think you were actually getting emotional about it, but you were talking about the moment when they first started playing the song, because that's yeah. a big moment for you. Yeah. I mean, I, so I wasn't there, to be clear, but like... Oh, you were there. 
No, I was not there. So I'm, oh, you is, were it's not all, there. Okay. It's all secondhand. But even on tape, I mean, you can hear just the like the crowd response as it dawns on people in waves what they're doing is just one of the greatest like one of my favorite recorded moments because it's just such a pure outpouring of emotion <laughs> rolling across this arena uh as they like uh recognize that they're actually doing a dead cover and actually picked you know the maybe the best possible dead cover for fish to play too in terrapin station so it's it's a beautiful moment it's a good thing to turn to in uh difficult times and late night drives yeah i mean it was, in, in the context of it was it was the third anniversary of jerry's death so you have the heaviness of that and then you also have fish which is you know the inheritor in a way of of the grateful dad's throne explicitly acknowledging the dead in a way that fish normally like certainly at that time didn't do and, and really subsequently hasn't done all that much i mean i feel like fish normally acknowledges their influences quite often you know that they cover Jimi hendrix a lot they cover little feet a lot um but the dead has always been this unspoken thing that everyone knows that the dead is an influence on fish but like fish doesn't talk about it and it seemed like in a way that they couldn't talk about it maybe at that time like it would have been too obvious for them to to cover the dead and it was also i think you know if you read in every review of every concert you played or every album you put out the words grateful dead (laughs) i think you would obviously want to shy away from drawing attention to that connection and they just kind of left it implicit you know everybody knew that they came up deadheads and that they took a lot of inspiration from the dead as far as you know not just musically but how the organization was run and how they approached live performance uh and so i think they just shied away from it which is part of what makes that moment so special because you know they wouldn't even talk about the dead in interviews unless they were you know almost forced at gunpoint to and they've they've loosened up on that a lot and fairly well had something to do with that and mike i think is always a little more willing to talk about the dead than the others but yeah it was uh you know a pretty major statement for them to actually play a a grateful dead cover uh uh you know at that time in their history at that point and you know as i think we're gonna talk about a lot today felt very much like a uh changing of the guard type of moment in a lot of ways and I can't remember the rest of the song, really. I, I remember the beginning. I mean, did they do a good job with Terrapin? They did, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a very reverence version. It's not like they take it off in some weird, unusual new direction. But uh, Trey especially is like locked in, and it sounds very rehearsed. And Terrapin's not the type of song that they could just toss off. It's part of why it, it was such a special and appropriate choice, because... It's a you know a pretty difficult song and something that they would have had to take a lot of practice and care in getting just right versus you know playing Sugar Magnolia or something <laughs> well, <laughs> like, that they could they could learn in their sleep. Yeah, I was just imagining like you know Fishman coming out doing like a vacuum solo in the middle of Terrapin, like if that like how that would have gone over <laughs> like on the third anniversary of Jerry's death. Fishman comes out like he's he's wearing like a black dress this time. You know, (laughs) with an (laughs) armband, he plays a very serious vacuum solo. 
in the middle of that. Probably wouldn't have right. gone over very well. Uh, yeah, maybe not quite as special a moment. <laughs> yeah. This is 36 from the vault, presented by Osiris. And uh, by the way, I'm Steve. And I'm Rob. And uh, we're going to be talking about the dead in this episode, but we're mainly going to be talking about, as you've probably already guessed, fish. And uh, I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah. And I feel like and I, I feel like you are. You're probably even more excited than I am, Rob. I feel like you've been preparing for this episode your entire life. Yeah. And also, you know, just a little like backstory for the listeners. You know, this podcast wouldn't exist without fish. And I think Steve and I would not be friends without fish. It's true. And it's like one of like my proudest achievements uh, as a a music critic that I actually convinced one, precisely one other music critic to get into fish. And that was Steve. It's true. Like was, uh, you know, to his credit. Uh, I don't know how long ago was it now? Like five or six years. Uh, it's longer than that. It, it's like uh, it's like seven years, seven eight years ago. Yeah, he came uh, with a very open mind and wanted to get into fish, and people steered the steered him my way as the you know the internet's only <laughs> fish loving uh, you know predominantly indie covering music critic. Uh, and I sent Steve a primer on how to get into fish, which eventually made it into Steve's book. Uh, and it worked so well that we eventually went to a show together, and then we went to many shows together, and then we started a Grateful Dead podcast. So here we are. I have to say, Rob, that that experience of you, and I'm going to say that you are Yoda and I am Luke Skywalker in this <laughs> analogy. Uh, in terms of you training me uh, and transforming my life, I, I will say that it has enriched my life tremendously getting into fish because I feel like it's been a pathway to so many other things for me musically and, and just in terms of my life. And I hope that that may sound hyperbolic to people, although probably not the, to the people listening to this show. I feel like people listening to the show would understand what I'm talking about. Like to anyone else who isn't into this kind of music, they might think that sounds weird, but it, it, you opened a door for me. And uh, I appreciate that, and I'll always owe you. So, uh, you know, I feel like this podcast is getting off to a very emotional start already. I feel like we've already hit an emotional climax that I hope we can. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like it's like we've started the set with Terrapin. It's like can we get can we get that high in the rest of the show? Hopefully, we can. But um, before we get into this episode, and by the way, we should say that. Uh, what we're going to be talking about in this episode is we're going to be talking about the Island Tour from early 1998, uh, April of 1998. We're going to be talking about the April 3rd show specifically. And I think we'll get into like why we chose that show out of the Island Tour. But we're going to be talking about that tour in general and just the significance of that tour in Fish's history and, and how we ultimately feel like this discussion connects back to the Grateful Dead because I think you know we want to talk about fish because we both love fish but also I feel like this is also a way to talk about the post-Jerry years Uh, you know the years after Jerry died and before and I mean really much before we had 
Dead and Co. You know, which is like the the sort of the rebirth of the dead as like a major touring attraction. You know, there was a long wilderness period basically for uh, the dead where there were different offshoots and maybe at some point we'll talk about some of those. But I think the late 90s are a really interesting time for just talking about the void that was left after after Jerry left and, and how Fish in a way filled that void but also didn't fill that void. Yeah, and how the sort of schisms of, you know, the fish scene and the dead scene, which were, you know, already sort of in place before Jerry died, but then were sort of magnified by that void that you talk about, um, that, you know, a lot of that sort of tension still exists to this day, which is sort of fascinating. I mean, we're now 25 years on from Jerry Garcia dying. And you would think at this point that the sort of dead world and fish world would have merged into one. But as we learned from, you know, some social media (laughs) when we were testing the waters on doing a fish episode, there's actually a lot of dead fans that still see fish as sort of the uh, pretenders to the throne (laughs) (laughs) in a lot of ways. Uh, Well, and and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, when we were talking about, you know, we wanted to do a curveball episode where we took a step back from Dick's Picks and we talked about another band as a way to kind of get a different perspective on the dead before going back into the Dick's Picks thing. And we mentioned wanting to do fish and we got this negative response from quite a few people. And it was surprising to Rob and I because, you know, Rob and I, we both, we love both bands. And I think a lot of people that we know that are into jam bands love both bands. But there are obviously a lot of deadheads who can't stand fish. And (laughs) that just made us want to talk about fish even more on this (laughs) podcast, thinking that it, you know, it might temporarily annoy people to talk about fish, a segment of the audience. But hopefully by the end of this episode, if you aren't a fish fan, at least you will gain a modicum of appreciation or understanding of this band perhaps and and how 
listening to this band and studying this band can give you a different perspective on the Grateful Dead. Right. Though, to be honest, if if you haven't been convinced in the first twenty five years, <laughs> I think if I don't, I'm not sure we're going to be the ones that do the convincing. So, for those people, if you want to take a, an episode off and meet us back here for Dick's Picks Volume Seven next time, I won't hold it against you. Uh, but I do think uh, you know we can offer like a, an interesting perspective on sort of why fish. Uh, took the baton from the dead uh and you know why you should maybe give them another chance maybe it's like your 99th chance by this point but uh if you were going to give them another chance the this show and this run of shows is the way to do it one thing that's interesting to me about this dynamic is and, I, and i've heard this come up when i've when i've talked to various people i feel like there's a common phenomenon like we're people maybe get into fish like they got into fish in the 90s when they were in high school or in college and at some point they got into the grateful dead as well and then they left fish because they felt that fish was this sort of adolescent thing that they liked when they were a teenager but then they outgrew it and they they sort of looked down on it in a way in comparison to the dead, which, um, and again, I think, obviously, I don't agree with this perspective, but it seems like there's this idea that, like, the dead are more sophisticated or more grown up, and fish is more of, like, a thing that you liked when, in the 90s when you were in high school or college. Does that make sense? Do you feel like that's a common phenomenon? Well, I think certainly in, like, the last five, ten years, as the dead's critical stature has really, like, boomed, uh, that's probably been the case because I think like at this point it is no longer like contrarian or unusual to say that you like the Grateful Dead even if you listen to you know non-jam band music the rest of the time if you're into indie rock or even punk or other things like everybody can kind of agree that the Dead were a great classic band at this point uh so their fish hasn't really quite experienced that rehabilitation i feel like it's happened a little bit particularly in the last couple years as like maybe music critics have just started to understand that fish isn't going away and they might as well like at least try and understand what this phenomenon is uh but you know the grateful dead are we've talked a lot about this but you know between the two of us the grateful dead are like such a serious heavy band that it's a lot easier to like think of them as this like mature thing that just like ages well with time and will always be eternal and uh you know change your your perspective on it changes with age in a lot of ways whereas fish just by nature has a lot more humor which makes it like them seem like a more of an adolescent like college like fling type of band that maybe doesn't age as well to some people uh again I'm playing devil's advocate here and I wouldn't agree with that at all. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, maturity and depth to the, to fish that you, that sort of reveals itself with time. Uh, but yeah, I think it kind of comes down to like sort of the base music they're working with where the dead have these sort of like old souls 
that people will always gravitate towards, whereas uh, Fish are a lot more of a, a prankstery approach to music in a lot of ways. Yeah, like the dead sing about death a lot, and they sing about cowboys mm-hmm. and you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> whereas Fish, yeah. Fish doesn't have a lot of songs about death. They have a lot of songs about souls. And you know <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, you I know mean, that's yeah. more of a recent thing. But you know, like in the '90s, there was they did a lot of there was obviously the whole game hedge thing. There was a dense pathology with that. Uh, there was a lot of songs that were you know very irreverent. Uh, I don't want to say jokey songs, but certainly songs that like aren't meant to be taken as seriously as like. A lot of dead songs, like you know, like like right. But also, I think musically too, there's a difference where there's an overt intellectualism. I think to what the Dead were doing, certainly in the '60s, where they were this countercultural band that was experimenting, uh, you know, sort of with psychedelic music, and then they were going into, you know, country music and folk music and blues music, all music again that is like taken seriously, and it's. It's taken seriously by serious people. A lot of chin strokers right. are into that kind of music. Whereas <laughs> Fish has always embraced music that, for lack of a better term, sounds more like a party. You know, music that you can dance to uh, more readily. You know, funk music, you know, was mm-hmm. a big thing that came in. And we're going to be talking about that in, the, in this episode because uh, in the late 90s, funk became an overt thing. That that fish that became a big part of Fish's music and uh, and I think funk and jam band music I think that's always had sort of a weird stigma because a lot of jam bands dabble in that and they don't do it very well and right. I think Fish does it in a much different way um, and certainly you know the Grateful Dead have a history of being a dance band as well um, and there's a lot of fun in the Dead's music you know I'm not trying to caricature them as like a joyless band. But certainly in comparison to Fish, you're right. The sense of irreverence that's overt in Fish's music, it's not as much there in The Grateful Dead. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also the fact, too, that, you know, Fish really doesn't have any kind of mainstream presence at all. That as much as people, I mean, I think that they're a well-known band. People know who they are. But I know for me personally, like when I... When I first came to you, you know, uh, many years ago, wanting to learn about fish, it was because I realized that I had this perception of fish that had been implanted in me just by music culture and sort of the anti, sort of the knee-jerk dislike of hippie music, you know, putting hippie music mm-hmm. in quotes. Um, and I realized I didn't really know anything about fish. I, I, I didn't know any of their albums. I didn't know any of their songs. And I feel like with The Grateful Dead, even if you aren't a fan of the band, they have enough songs that have crossed over that, like, like people know American Beauty, you know, they know Truckin', they know Touch of Grey. <laughs> you know, there's like a handful right. of touchstones that anyone knows. You don't have to be a Grateful Dead fan to follow them. And, and Fish really doesn't have anything like that. So as famous no. as they are in a lot of ways, they're also a mystery, and they're very easy to caricature for that reason. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the angle on most, like I said, of these you know recent mainstream articles about Fish 
where people are trying to grapple with that phenomenon. I mean, it always starts lately, at least with, you know, how did this band sell out 13 nights at Madison Square Garden <laughs> in one summer? <laughs> like that ha- has never had a hit single that you couldn't, the, you know, 99% of people couldn't hum a single or name a single fish song. And yet they're one of the like last bands that can pull off these sort of classic music industry feats such as selling out Madison Square Garden for a huge run or, uh, you know, playing a nationwide tour to adoring audiences and all this. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they've, they have become like a hugely successful cult band in a way that, you know, very few other bands have ever been able to pull off. Like, and, you know, cult in the definition of like, if, if, if you're not into them, you aren't really aware of them at all. Like, other bands that you would put up with them, they've all had some sort of mainstream success. Like the other big jam bands have a, you know, a Dave Matthews band or something like that. Or even, you know, I, I hear them compared to Rush a lot too, as like a band that is, you know, very much uncool, but still has a massive following. But of course, Rush, you'll hear within an hour on any classic rock station, uh, right. one of their songs. So, the, you know, there's, there's nothing like Fish really. And, a lot of what they've been able to do is because they built it on the foundation of what the dead laid down. Uh, so like, I don't think you can ever fully escape the dead's influence on fish and even in sort of like a structural way. Uh, but yeah, it's, they're a truly unique band, uh, not just in today's music landscape, but you know, of the last 25, 30 years. It's interesting. Like how, Fish and the Dead end up being put in the same lane because on one hand, they are clearly the two biggest bands of the jam scene. Like there's really no one even close. I guess like the Allman Brothers band would be like the third in the triptych, although they feel like a little bit different to me, maybe because of the Southern rock thing. I mean, there's certainly the Southern rock wing of the jam world, which, you know, you've got widespread panic obviously and government mule being like the two big kind of tributaries off of that um but i feel like they don't quite get the same i don't know i feel like they're not as defined as a jam band the way the dead and fish are i mean right would you say right i mean because i feel like they're maybe thought of as a southern rock band first before they're thought of a thought of as a jam band yeah I mean, they're like beer commercial rock to a lot of people. <laughs> right. Uh, it, and I love it, the Almonds, like, by the way. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm a huge Almond Brothers fan. Um, and I think of them as a jam band, really. But and the, and the, well, the other thing with them, too, is that they don't vary their set list as much either. I mean, if you listen mm-hmm. to Almond Brothers shows, it's like they're playing the same set, like a lot. Especially right. like the Dwayne Almond era, um, which is the frustrating thing about listening to bootlegs from that that time because they're kind of playing the same 10 songs um every show for the most part and obviously mountain jam will vary pretty dramatically from from night to night but other than that there's not there's not nearly the variance that you get from a grateful dead or a fish show um right. but anyway my point being that they're put in the same lane but and 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 really you know especially after jerry died it seems like the dead comparisons really picked up with fish because then it seemed like 
you know, the media turned to them as the next link in the chain. Because that also coincided with Fish really starting to blow up, like in 95. Like Jerry Mm -hmm. dies in August 9th, 1995. Um, And a live one came out, I think, in 95. In June, yeah. So it was like right around that time. And that becomes... um, did that record go platinum? I think it would gold at least. I mean, I mean that was their biggest selling record up to that point. It's correct? their biggest record, I think, to date even. Best right. selling record. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, really, it, you know, it's like, I think it's also like, it's critical that Fish, you know, they, that summer was also the summer that Dave Matthews Band and Blues Traveler blew up. Right. Like they all released albums in 1994. Uh, Fish's album sunk like a stone <laughs> hoist uh and dave matthews and blues traveler both had huge massive radio hits so whereas they were all kind of you could argue maybe at a similar level in 1994 they all got bigger in 1995 but in different ways where you know dmb and blues traveler became sort of radio poppy uh hit bands fish continued on in the sort of dead like you know, everybody kind of is aware of them, but nobody really knows why, <laughs> sort of roadshow way. Uh, so that seemed to be the more logical place for people to, to hop on from the dead to uh, to fish rather than trying to fight with the teeny boppers for Dave Matthews Band tickets. So really, it's a perfect storm in a way where I don't, obviously the bands didn't plan on this, but in a way you could say that they benefited from the dead going down at that point because there was obviously this huge audience that like wanted to follow bands in the summertime and Mm. obviously a lot of people were already following fish but the dead audience wasn't going to be able to follow the dead anymore and here's this other band that is really starting to ascend at this point Uh, but the point i was trying to make earlier is about them being placed in the same lane is that musically they're very different and uh I think it's apparent to anyone that actually listens to these bands that they could tell the difference. But I think in, the way I always define it is that to me, the Grateful Dead are a band that, you know, they draw from basically early 20th century music, you know, the first 50 or 60 years of the 20th century, which would mean blues, jazz, folk, country, and early rock and roll. Whereas Fish is drawing from basically the FM rock era starting in the late 60s and really going up into I guess you could say the early 90s for Fish. Yeah. I don't think they're going much later than that. Although, you know, they do end up covering some indie rock stuff, you know, TV on the radio and and stuff like that. But for the most part, those are the reference points. Um and I guess if we had to really kind of nail down a reductive difference between the bands, is it fair to say that the Grateful Dead is more of a mid-tempo band and Fish is more of an up-tempo band. Is that a fair assessment to make? Yeah. Or like, how would you define the difference like in sort of a easy-to-define way? Huh, yeah. I mean, I think Fish is definitely a lot more comfortable at higher tempos. Uh, they, they have never quite, in my opinion at least, and I know we differ on this, uh, succeeded in really finding like a a good ballad zone. Uh, So it's another reason why I think maybe some people perceive the dead as having more depth, quote unquote, than fish, 
because you have all these great, rich, Jerry, Robert Hunter ballads that are real, like, tearjerkers, like, uh, uh, exploring the depths of the soul in a Stella Blue or something like that, that, you know, Fish has never really quite been able to pull off. Uh, but yeah, I think they're just, I mean, I love that theory of you, of yours, uh, about pulling from different, you know, eras of American music and different songbooks. I think that really put a point on like what the difference is between those two bands and fish is just, you know, they're working from sort of the, 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 the heyday of classic rock and all of its weird sort of offshoots. I mean, I think they're a fussier band in a lot of ways, too. They're definitely more, like, um, you know, technically gifted than the dead ever were uh, and more prone to writing sort of these ornate, proggy compositions, which is another thing that I think turns off a lot of people from the dead trying to hop into Fish. Uh, They're, you know, musically at least equally uh, acolytes of Frank Zappa as they are of the Grateful Dead. Uh, and that turns off a lot of people. So they, and they're a little more like hyperactive in a lot of ways than the dead were. So that it's, it's less like a up-tempo down-tempo thing, but more of a sort of ADHD thing, which I find very appealing in music, but I think other people maybe, uh, find a little off-putting as well. Uh, and sort of feeds into this like perception that they're they're not a serious band or they're more of a novelty act. So well, yeah, they it, they function in different modes, I think. And it's interesting too because, and we'll get into this later in the episode when we talk about four three ninety eight. But Fish's approach to to roots music too is interesting to me because, especially in comparison to the Dead, because you know like when the Dead shifted from being a psychedelic band to more of like an Americana band in a way, like around that American Beauty Working Men's Dead era, and they were doing acoustic sets. Um, there was a real reverence to the way that they would play folk music, and they would... It, it, it was, in a way, you could say at the time that, you know, someone could have made the argument that, like, Jerry Garcia wasn't a legitimate folky because he was playing in this loud rock and roll band. Um, although he obviously had a history before that of being a folk musician and a bluegrass musician. Um, but you know, they, they played it in a very sort of reverent straight ahead way. Whereas fish, I don't think like, like when they play bluegrass songs or they play like country songs, I don't think that they're being jokey. I wouldn't use that term, but, there is a postmodern quality to the way Fish approaches that kind of music. Where yeah, for sure. They're under, where they're acknowledging their distance from it. Like they're mm-hmm. like when they play that kind of music, they're not playing it, you know, pretending like you know, like we grew up in the South and like you know, this is the kind of music that we were born to play. Um, they're, they're playing it like people that are in a rock band that like this kind of music, but we're also going to play it in our sort of rock band way. And right. I think that also might be a little strange for people, you know, because again, it it might strike people as being, again, like, like you said, like they're not serious about it. But to me, right. that's one of the interesting things about this band. I think that's also how they approach a lot of their classic rock covers too, where uh-huh. uh, they're not, you know they're not like a conventional rock band, but they can 
play act that a little bit, but also I know that fish just has a great way, I think of loving something, but also critiquing it or not critiquing it, but commenting on it in the way that they approach it. I feel like right. I'm in the weeds here talking about this with very rock critic language. I hope, this is, <laughs> I hope I'm not. I hope I'm not crawling into my own ass here. But I mean, does any of that make sense to you? No, it, I totally agree. And it, I mean, it, it comes down to like you know, so Jerry was reverently studying the American anthology of folk music, um, and then twenty twenty five years later or not even 15 years later, Trey is reverently studying like quadrophenia, right? So right. what, <laughs> right. like in Boston the, and, records and like, yeah, you exactly. know, it's stuff like that. And yes, records. And so, and, right. And so when he is encountering bluegrass, I think, you know, eventually they get around to listening to like the masters of bluegrass, but you know, they, I think encountered all these other genres secondhand through the prism of like classic rock bands that were drawing upon those influences. Right. So, I mean, we can call it postmodern as a fancy term for it, but I think it's just, you know, they, they have omnivorous taste, but they came to it in a very like seventies kid way. Right. Like you're not just going to pick up a Bill Monroe record in Vermont, probably when you're a 16 year old, you're going to hear like some bluegrass inflected, uh, you know, like a Rod Stewart song or something, and then, you know, work your right. way backwards uh, to 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 the the roots of that sound. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, that's the thing is I think people will consider it sort of tongue in cheek or condescending when they play other genres of music, and it's like it's easy to think that when there's a guy in a dress, uh, possibly with a like washboard with Madonna boobs on it <laughs> playing uh bluegrass covers uh in 1994 but uh I, I mean I think they are you know clearly just music geeks and they want to play everything and try their hands at everything and what maybe could seem condescending if you're just dabbling in fish pretty quickly becomes like an endearing quality of their music that they just want to try try it all and kind of bend it to their own sound and strengths, but at least like push their limits of, uh, of what kind of music they can play. Well, I was going to say that, I mean, that perspective is what connected me to fish because I feel like I'm closer to Trey than I am to Jerry. You know, Jerry is someone who, I mean, Jerry died long before I was a Grateful Dead fan. So I never got to see him play live. He only exists to me in video footage and on old performance tapes. And the world that he comes from is also not my world. You know, I, I did not I did not come up and hate the hate in the in the late sixties. You know, I have no real connection to that beyond documentaries. But the world that like Fish comes from, I, I do feel some affinity for because that's really the path that I took to music, you know, being a classic rock fan as a as a kid and really accessing other genres through that through that lens. Um, so when I listen to fish in a way, it, it feels more of my sensibility than the dead does as much as I love the dead, you know, and Mm -hmm. we're going to be comparing the dead and fish a lot in this episode. (laughs) There's going to be some things that we say we like more about fish and things we like more about the dead. That's not even as much of a preference thing. I just feel like that's just more of like a personal connection. Mm-hmm. type thing and i don't know if you have a similar feeling with that yeah i mean it's you know i've been able to grow up with fish 
you know, to put it in a cheesy way, <laughs> where I got into them in 1995 when I was 16, and I've been listening to them, you know, for two thirds of my life now, and seen them at 70 sometimes, I guess, and listened to hundreds of more shows, and yeah, I mean, it just as as much respect as I have for the dead, and as much that I do think, as we are constantly saying, they are the greatest American band. Um, Fish is always going to be my favorite American band because I was able to see it firsthand and, you know, follow this whole story, you know, as it's been in progress and as it's still in progress, which is still tremendously exciting to follow along with rather than The Dead, which is sort of like a, it's a story with an ending and an epilogue that never seems to end, but (laughs) it, it, it has, you know, completed a dramatic arc to some extent. Yeah, we're like we're uh, like with the dead. We've been around to see the J.J. Abrams films, basically. <laughs> you know, like we're yeah. in the J.J. Abrams era of the dead, but like the George Lucas era was uh, like a little bit before our time. <laughs> As we said earlier, we're going to be talking about something called the Island Tour, which occurred in 1998 in April, a series of four shows that took place around the New York City area. And um, there's a lot of reasons we chose this, but I think one interesting thing was just the parallel that... uh, exist between fish and dead at the at the at the, at these times in their careers because we just got done talking about two dicks picks from the Brent era really the beginning of the Brent era one in 79 and one in 83 and the, the these shows in 98 they occur 15 years into fish's career so it would be 1980 in Grateful Dead years. So like around the same time as like these last two dicks picks. And it really is fascinating to compare these two bands at this time in their arcs, because, you know, we could talk all day long about, you know, who's the better band doing this or who's the better band at that. But I don't think there's any question that 
What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. The Grateful Dead around 1980, I think they were still a really great band, but I don't think anyone would argue that they were at their peak Mm -hmm. in 1980. Whereas Fish, in their 15th year, uh, was absolutely at their peak. And I think they were. it was a peak that lasted several years in the late 90s. Um, but, um, you know, 1998 and like the Island Tour specifically um, is just an incredible high for this band. And I think there's a lot of reasons for why Fish kind of peaked in a way later than the Dead did. Mm-hmm. Um, and was, I think also able to maintain a consistency once they plateaued in a way that maybe the dead didn't. Um, I was going to say like the, the, the similarity to me between 1980 and the dead and 1998 and fish is that they both, those are both years where I feel like they found the sound that they were going to ride for the rest of their careers pretty much. Uh, except in the case of the dead, I think there was a little bit of like complacency like in 1980 they kind of established like all right this is what we're good at we're not really going to be like challenging ourselves too severely from here on out where i mean there's a lot of great years and great shows after 1980 but it's there's not really like entire new eras of you know grateful dead changing their sound after that point um other than you know brent's becoming a bigger influence and other members of the band sort of fading out uh whereas fish it's like you're right they had sort of this late maturity where i think anything pre-1998 uh in 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 fish show uh in the fish show catalog uh it sounds like a very different band from today but everything from 1998 on kind of sounds like the way fish still does today like i feel like they kind of turned a corner where they found like this is the sound of modern fish and I think they've also not really broken through into any significant new territory since then. But rather than it being sort of a complacent plateau, it's sort of like they reached this new like high peak and they've just like existed up there ever since with sort of some jagged lines up and down along the way. Now, in terms of them hitting their peak... It seems like there's two main factors in play, and 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 please correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, or or if you feel like you need to add more. But it seems like the first major factor, especially if you're going to compare them to the Dead, is that they had the same four people that entire time. You know, in 1980, yeah. the Dead, I believe, were on their fourth keyboardist because we had Pig because we, 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 we have Pigpen, we have Constant Constantin. Tom Consonant. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got uh, um, Keith. You have Keith. You, have you have Keith Gatcho, yeah. and you have Brent. So you have four people. You have Paige McConnell and Fish the entire time. And obviously the other guys yeah. have been in the band the entire time. So you have the stability of people. Um, you, you, you never have to warm somebody up 
for like, you know, six months or a year to kind of get them into the swing of things. The other big factor is that, and this is going to change soon after this, but up to 98, Fish was a relatively straight-laced band, you know, doing some, you know, musician stuff, but like not really getting hardcore into alcohol or any kind of substance abuse, you know, they seem pretty keyed into just being like a phenomenal live band. And yeah, the they were huge nerds, huge like, nerds. <laughs> I mean, and they just, it took them a long time to get past that. Yeah. And they're doing listening exercises and like, they're doing like long sound checks. Um, you know, and Trey yeah. is basically, you know, after the show going to his hotel room and working on the next, next night's set list and just obsessing over mm-hmm. it. And I, I think the dead had that for a while. It's like, you know, I just recently watched the Grateful Dead movie and there's a clip in there of, of Jerry Garcia talking about how he once, this was like an early dead show. He got so annoyed with Phil after a show because he didn't <laughs> think it was as good as it should have been that he like pushed him down a staircase. And, yeah. and then he listened to the tape later on and he's like, oh, this is actually pretty great. And <laughs> And after that, he said, basically, it's like anything that I feel inside of me I know it's not connected to the music that we're making. And I imagine in his mind it must have been difficult because if your goal every night is to traverse the astral plane with your music, that's a pretty lofty goal. And if you feel like you aren't achieving it, that must be tremendously frustrating. But it seems like at some point the dead, either because they just loosened up or because there were other substances coming into their consciousness and, and, and addictions and all that, you know, they weren't able to maintain that kind of focus. Whereas Fish really did maintain that focus for a long time. Um, but of course, even Fish got derailed at some point. <laughs> uh, really like, right. I mean, kind of starting with this year. I mean, isn't that fair to say like going into like the late 90s, like after 98, going to 99, 2000, that's like when the backstage betty ford clinic you know scene like got really heavy it's picking up and i feel like 1998 is like that hour or two of like the night when you're on a real bender and everything feels just like amazing and then everything (laughs) after that is like sort of shifting from amazing to really dark and scary or like even like the point of like addiction as a whole like where there's like you know a year or six months or something where like the 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 drug is helping you be like the best person you can be before it like sort of starts to overwhelm you like 1998 really feels like that year to me where they're clearly like partying really hard but it's like working for them it's still fun yeah <laughs> and the fun. year is so good it's my favorite fish year yeah. at this point uh yeah but then it, it's, it's like, like the yeah, same like, thing we're... happened like in 99 and 2000 you can hear it sort of taking its toll i think on the band but even then, like, it, they were making it work for them where it is starting to get a little bit darker, but, like, the darkness, you know, it, yeah. they it feed still off sounds it. cool. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and, I mean, not to belabor this comparison, but I do, uh, I think a very crucial parallel between the dead and fish is that, and where fish diverges from the dead, is that, you know, fish eventually has this long hiatus in the middle of the 2000s, you know, yeah. you know, they go on hiatus in 2000, they come back in 2003, and then 
after you know that 2.0 era uh they go on like a real hiatus where they basically just break up for five years and then they are able to come back in 09 and with a much healthier perspective mm-hmm. and in whatever you want to say about 3.0 i mean i love 3.0 because that's the fish that i've been around to see you know, I wouldn't say that 3.0 has ever approached the highs of of, of 1.0. Like, the, 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 I don't know if they've ever hit, like, the island tour heights, you know, in, in 3.0. But they've been a very good band in 3.0. And you look at the dead, and, you know, and, and Jerry just never had that hiatus. Right. He never had that chance to, to just stop and, and you know, any, live off the ice cream money, as he says in the documentary. Yeah, any uh, dead book or uh, any dead interview... Like that's like the number one regret of everybody involved is that they couldn't give Jerry that hiatus to get his like shit together and that it's probably what killed him a lot earlier than he would have gone otherwise. And I think, yeah, musically they would have benefited as well, perhaps like that long run of the eighties where really the only break they took was because Jerry put himself in a coma. Like, <laughs> right. Like, if they had been able to sort of pause things for a couple of years and, you know, reassess what they were doing, like, I think musically it would have, they would have benefited as well as physically. So we were talking about, you know, we, we've hinted at, like, the brilliance of Fish in 1998. It's interesting because for me, like, 1997 has always been this, has always been my favorite year for Fish. And, I mean, 1998 I love, too. But when I listen to these island tour shows, well, for, before we talk about that, maybe you should give us some more background because we've said island tour a bunch of times here. I feel like we should maybe explain exactly what that was. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, yeah, happily compared to all these dead shows where I'm, you know, drawing from second or third hand <laughs> sources on what things were like at that time. Like, I was I was a fish fan at this point. I was a very big fish fan by the end of 1997, so I remember this well. And yeah, you're right, Steve, that uh, the fall tour, particularly December 1997, is considered probably, if any tour could be the consensus greatest fish tour, that would probably be the one that wins any fish fan poll. Uh, So at the end of 1997, they were like red hot. People were really excited about what they were doing. And they, I would say it was only like March uh, it was pretty close to when these shows actually happened. They announced them as sort of like a last-minute mini spring tour. And because people were so fired up about 1997, this was like earth-shattering news to fish fans across the country that they were... Everybody normally was people just, would be waiting till the summer, right? I mean, yeah, that exactly. was the thought. Like, well, they're not, they're not going to be and back until like June. It may not. So the Doniak Schweiss was the way we heard about fish tour dates back then. I mean, they had like a website, of course, but like, you know, I think they had even announced like, we're taking the spring off. We'll see you in the summer. They knew, I think everybody knew they were going to Europe in the first part of the summer and then they would do a, a their typical U.S. tour in summer 98. Uh, so these were like, as, you know, surprise shows as they come, basically. They gave everybody about a month's notice. They did a quick like mail order. Uh, and people just like flipped out <laughs> that they were going to play like unexpected shows uh, in spring of 1998 and just kind of like that there was going to be an opportunity to to keep this momentum going uh, from what everybody had experienced in December 1997. So 
summer night uh fall of 1997 is when i started college and when i went from being sort of like a casual fish fan to like an obsessive fish fan because i fell in pretty quickly with like a tape traders club at the university of michigan where i went uh where we would literally sit around uh the weekend after a show and run a chain of tape decks and get first generation tapes off our taper friend who had taped shows uh so some real like old-fashioned nerdy shit (laughs) nerdy fish shit um and i had a bunch of friends in that group that as soon as they announced these 98 shows they were like we're going like i don't know i don't care what's going on in school we're going so i have a very good fish friend who almost failed out of college his freshman year because he went to so many fall 97 shows and then went to these island tour shows and then went to a bunch of summer 98 shows uh so people were like uh you know really really caught up in fish fever at this point uh so even before they happened these shows had sort of like this extra shine to them uh and then every show ended up being tremendous uh some really really high quality tapes of these shows i feel like distributed really fast like i was able to get them because of these like michigan tape trader friends who were at the shows and they had um if i'm remembering this correctly there was a dude named burris who was famous for doing fob tapes front of board tapes so anybody who's been to a dead show or a fish show knows like the proper taper section is behind the soundboard that's where you can buy a taper ticket and put your mics up on poles and record the show uh burris had a hat that had been wired with little tiny microphones uh that sort of fed through the mesh hat into the brim of his hat and then he would put his dat recorder somewhere under his shirt and he would go up towards the front of the stage where the sound was supposedly better for recording a tape uh and the island tour tapes that i had and i think a lot of people around the country had were taped off of the burris fobs and they sounded amazing so it was you know sort of like the dead cornell phenomenon where <laughs> shows became famous because they sounded so good that the right. that everybody's copy sounded so good um these were shows that sounded great like they caught the band at this really exciting moment there were like new songs there were classic versions of old songs it had it all so this is like as instant classic a fish run as you ever get in fish history i think so i feel like in case there are still like dead skeptics i'm sorry in case there's dead heads who are fish skeptics who are still listening right now maybe we should just explain like because we keep saying like how much we love fish and you know it's worth maybe trying to encapsulate what exactly was so special about fish at this time and for me, the big thing about fish, like 97, 98 fish, but especially these island tour shows, is their ability to play as an ensemble. That obviously you have Trey Anastasio, who is the unquestioned leader of fish, and is in the Jerry Garcia mold and that he is often soloing over the band and those of us who love fish, they love, you know, we love Jerry's, we love Trey's guitar tone. We love the way he plays. But at this moment in time, he really was able to pull back and be on an equal playing field with the other three guys in the band where you can listen to these shows and just zero in on one part of what's going on in the mix and be totally entranced by it. You can listen to Paige. He's doing brilliant stuff. Mike is doing brilliant stuff. You know, Fishman's doing brilliant stuff. 
And uh, I can't really think of another band that compares to what Fish was doing at this time in terms of this, just their ability to play together and to improvise together. And I do include The Dead in that. And I love The Dead. The Dead, obviously, brilliant improvisers. But I don't even think The Dead were able to have each guy be sort of featured at the same time and yet also not showing off, you know, playing together, but also just taking it in, in these totally just inventive and, and unforeseen directions and feeling like everyone is pushing it forward and not just like one person being out front while the rest of the guys support them. Um, yeah. And I think Fish's ability to do that at this moment in time, I just feel like is unparalleled. And it really knocks me out listening to the, that's what knocks me out the most listening to these shows. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I mean by saying that 1998 is the year that Fish finally reached this point of like modern, mature, fully realized Fish. Because yeah, they very much were Trey's band and they still are Trey's band more than any other, anybody else in the band. Like he's a a definitive leader of that band. Uh, But musically, like 97 sort of pushed them in this direction where they became more democratic in their sound. And they got there by doing a lot of these like extended funk uh, uh, infused jamming style uh, that became sort of like the classic 97 sound. And then 98 is kind of where they pushed it into, hey, we can be this democratic and this communicative as of like a four piece band uh, doing all sorts of other types of music as well. And that's what they've continued forward with to this day. And I do think the dead were good at that at certain times, like, you know, calling back to say Dick's picks four with the dark stare, like the dark star, other one, love light, like sweet on Dick's picks four. It, there, there are moments on that where the dead really feel like one big cohesive whole and, Again, Jerry is still sort of like the the you can hear him as the musical leader more often than not in those jams, but there is just like a very like full democratic fluidity to the dead at times uh, that is very similar to what you're talking about with Fish, I think. Uh, but the dead, the gravity of the dead always comes back to Jerry, you know, like there's even in those shows, there's always going to be songs that are just like Jerry features in a way that you don't see as much of with fish. I feel like in a lot of times. Yeah. And I also feel like, and again, I mean, I've, I've said this in other episodes, but I think, you know, certainly there, there's really no keyboardist, I think in, in uh, the dead history that can match what page is doing in terms of just being on an equal playing field with the guitar player, you know, like where you feel like page is, and, and maybe this just has to do with like how, they're mixed too because i feel like the dead just mm-hmm. there's so much just there's a difference between like what's maybe going on, on stage versus like what's coming through like these recordings you know it, it may not be fully communicated but you know this is the way that we're hearing the music so we have to kind of regard it in that way um yeah i, I just feel like the four guys in this band you feel like they're somehow in a mind meld where they're deciding together at the same time to take 
a left turn or a right turn or to go wherever it's going to go. And it's just uncanny that they don't seem to make a wrong choice. You know, they don't make a wrong choice in these shows, in these shows, at least, you know, this Island Tour run, they don't make any wrong steps and they go pretty far out there, you know, but they're able to stay on the same page in just an incredible way. Um, You know, we were talking earlier about the funk element that Fish was really leaning on at this time. And this is known as, you know, like the cow funk era (laughs) for for Fish. Um, And... I know for me personally, like when I first started getting into fish, I was really resistant to the funk aspect. I think I may have even mm. said to you at some point, it's like, I don't like the funk stuff. And I think it had a lot to do with just negative connotations that I had going into like jam music with like right. white guy funky jam band stuff. <laughs> because there's a yep. lot of jam bands that do that in an embarrassing way and I have some in mind and I'm not going to say their names. I don't want to call anybody out, but there's a lot of terrible bands that lean on these sort of funky affectations that are really embarrassing. And I think yeah. where Fish diverges from those bands is that they're doing it in, for lack of a better term, more of an arty way, more of like sort of a like ambient, deconstructive, you know, really kind of turning stuff inside out kind of way instead of just doing like a straight on Sly and the Family Stone impression, you know, which I think a lot of jam bands end up reverting to. Well, I think I agree with that. I think for Fish, the sort of funk era of 1997, the the difference with Fish is that they use that as like a launch pad to, to more interesting things. There's a lot of jam bands that stop at that. Like they're just going to do sort of, uh, you know, a poor man's James Brown and the GBs every night and people will dance to it and people will like it, but there's not really anything that memorable or deep about it. And part of what I think is so exciting about 1998 is that, and, and this run in particular, which I feel like captures the exact moment <laughs> where fish figured out that the funk, stuff they were doing in 1997 like could be ported over to all these different like sort of noisier dreamier more experimental soundscapes is like like that is that's what's so exciting about fish is that they took it to the next level rather than just stopping at like hey we can do sort of a pale talking heads uh sort of funk jam thing for 90 minutes a night and they ended up basically using the momentum from these shows into the recording sessions for Story of the Ghost, which ended up being one of their best studio records. And you can clearly yeah. hear the roots of that album in these shows. Uh, I mean, there's no... I mean, they're right. playing some of those songs, obviously, um, in these shows as well. I mean, they ended up debuting Birds of a Feather, which they played twice during this run. Um, and there's a really great version... Uh, in the show after the one we're going to be talking about from the 4498 show, which by the way, I was listening a, a mm-hmm. lot to 4498 as well. We could have very easily talked about that one. I mean, that is very close, I think, to 4398. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think we made the yeah. right choice. Um, they also, and, and one of the reasons we did make the right choice, and we'll talk about this more later on, but they, w- another big debut from this run was playing Roses Are Free, the Ween song. Um, 
which, and we were talking about this because, you know, obviously Ween is a contemporary band of Fish. There was somewhat of a contentious relationship between Fish and Ween, more from Ween's side once Fish started covering this song. But, you know, we were were trying to think of, like, examples of the dead covering essentially contemporaneous artists. And uh, interesting, I mean, the example I thought of immediately was it's weird to think that th- that they were contemporaneous with this, but like you know Martha and the Vandellas, dancing in the street. Like when they started covering that, that was a new song, and then they just ended up playing mm-hmm. it forever. Um, but I feel like the Dead that did that fairly often, certainly in the in the sixties, going into the early seventies, where they were covering songs that were popular at the time. You know, me and Bobby McGee being another one. Uh, Simmy back home, the Merle Haggard song. I don't know if there's any other good examples like that. Well, that that kind of goes back to their origin as like a bar band, essentially. Right. <laughs> and it's like uh, like the Beatles, too, when they were starting out. Like, just that's what rock bands did back then. Like, they played the, the hits that were on the radio at that time, because that's what people at these bars or strip joints or whatever wanted to hear. Uh, so for them, it was more of like a business decision, I guess, than an artistic one. And some of those songs just kind of stuck around, but... Yeah, the one I always think of with the dead is that they started covering Werewolves of London. Like, (laughs) I think maybe even before it came out. I remember I looked this up at one point that like, or it was like within a month of its release or something like that. Like they covered Werewolves of London really fast uh, because I think they were just buddies with Zivon and uh, they also enjoyed playing it on Halloween. So that that helped (laughs) too. But that's like a more like later dead era contemporaneous cover. one or two because they covered Bob O'Reilly you know like famously in the early 90s and that's on uh, what Dick's Picks is that someone will have to tweet this at us but that's like one of our later Dick's Picks and uh, (laughs) I always wonder if they like started covering that again because like Pearl Jam was covering it a lot in like 1992 (laughs) so maybe that in a way was a a contemporaneous cover Um, right maybe so um before we get into four three ninety eight, let's let's set up the scene a little bit, and this is going to be much different than <laughs> some of our other, because like, again, like when we talk about the dead, you know, and we set and we talk about the different eras that they were playing in, you know, we're talking about like old songs that I know but I don't have firsthand knowledge of, because a lot of times it's before I was born. But these songs I really do remember. Like for instance, the number one song in right. America, the week of this fish show, or the week of the island tour run was All My Life by Casey and JoJo. Do you remember that song? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That was like, this was like really the era of like, um, 
like this was like a great era for like pop R and B basically because like a lot of the biggest right. songs of this time was like Casey and JoJo. By the way, for those who don't know, former members of Jodeci, big '90s R and B group. A lot of uh, you know bedroom. They were the Joe and the C, right? Yeah. What... Who was the D? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. I don't go deep on Jodeci. I know them enough. <laughs> I know them enough to know that like when they were really popular. I wasn't like making out with enough girls to know their <laughs> their songs. If I would have been like yeah. making out with a lot of girls in like 1992, I would have known tons of Jodeci songs, I'm sure, but I was right. not. Uh, but other big songs of this time, "Getting Jiggy with It" by Will Smith, right? <laughs> later Which covered Fish by would later Fe- cover. Yeah, they did '98, yeah. and it's on the Hampton Comes Alive record. Which, exactly, which has yeah. a lot of wacky covers on it, like too many wacky covers, right. I would, I would, I would It argue. is. That was a really, I mean, calling back to my definition of 1998 is like the fun hour of the bender. <laughs> like that's <laughs> right. that's part of that, I think. Right. But the, 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 the two-night run where they did getting jiggy with it and tub thumping, <laughs> right, <laughs> I think right. qualifies yeah, it's like, as, a, as a certain point in your uh, all-night bender. Yeah, That's sort of like, that's like when the dead drop three chuck berry songs in one set it's like if you're gonna do <laughs> tub thumping and getting jiggy with it it's like dudes all right you're doing too many rails like before the show I mean. <laughs> a little too high um uh, the number one song on the alternative chart was the way by fastball wow, classic yep yeah and that was really the era of like of like bands like that because like sex and candy by marcy playground was really big uh, closing time by Semisonic was like go. It was the number one song the following month. So like a lot of these sort of, you know, journeyman alt rock bands. It was like really the last stand of bands like that, like still being successful in 1998. And I remember like I worked for my college paper at this time, and it was this was like really like my last time of like listening to the radio, like for several hours a day. Like when I was in high school, I would do that. And in college, I would do that, like working in the newspaper office. So like all of these songs are all just embedded in my DNA. Uh, the number one so- the number one album in the country was the Titanic soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, which was a monster. So this is prime uh, Titanic time. Prime yeah. time. Again, like this is the backdrop for Fish. Like. Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On was a big song, of course, of this time. But yeah, the Titanic soundtrack, the number one album from late January to early May of 1998. (laughs) Do you know which album kicked it out of the number one spot? Well, only because you wrote it in our our, uh, document here, (laughs) but go ahead and reveal it. (laughs) It was the third Dave Matthews Band record before these crowded streets. Yeah. So circling back to your point earlier about the rise of you know you know 90s jam bands basically in mm-hmm. in 1995 you had fish being a very successful cult band you know touring on the road and then dave matthews band really i mean you could make the case they were the biggest band in america in in the late 90s yeah um playing huge shows but also selling like millions upon millions of records and having radio hits um, right. And basically, four years before this, they were opening for Fish. They were Fish's opening act in uh, April 1994 for a few shows. So, yeah, it's... 
like they've always stayed friendly right i mean dave and trey i mean they seem like yeah, they're pretty oh yeah. tight um so like it wasn't like fish looked down on dave matthews band at all and dave has always seemed to have a you know an affection for fish but like i mean dave matthews band they were like a stadium band mm-hmm. and i mean could they still play stadiums are they still big i feel like they i mean i'm trying to think of like what kind of venues they play now they're pretty I mean, they're much exactly really the same venues as Fish, I think. Right. Like they're, so they're playing they're, arenas they're, now. They're like an Alpine Valley type of band. Uh, right. And, uh, I mean, they and have they the same... Could they play Wrigley Field? They could play Wrigley Field, right? Dave Matthews? I think they might have, yeah. But they have the same management as Fish. Like Fish, when they came back in 2009, joined up with uh, Red Light Management, which was, I, I believe, maybe came... Like grew out of the Dave Matthews Band, if I'm right. Uh, so they're they're almost like sibling bands in a way now. But it's it's always funny to me that like Trey will sit in with Dave Matthews, like he was down in the Mexico Dave Matthews Tim Reynolds thing last month. Uh, but nobody from Dave Matthews Band ever sits in with Fish, and Fish doesn't really do sit-ins anymore. But I definitely feel like. Dave fans are like, oh yeah, Fish. Fish is pretty cool. And Fish fans are like, oh, Dave Matthews band. We hate them. We look down upon them. <laughs> so it's a very like, uh, asymmetrical relationship. What could what could Dave Matthews do in Fish? Like, besides just play the acoustic guitar and and do like all <laughs> on the Watchtower? Because so, I feel like he would have to sing lead, which would be terrible. I'm sorry, like Dave Matthews. I mean, you know, I respect Dave Matthews. I'm yeah. not a fan of his music, really, and I can't really stand his voice. Um, but, you know, I don't want to slag Dave Matthews. So we'll just leave it at that. I, <laughs> I can't really say anything more about Dave Matthews without saying something disrespectful, so right. I won't. Um, and we don't want to make Riley yeah, Walker mad at us, so, yeah, we'll leave it at <laughs> it's that. That's exactly. <laughs> Shout out to Riley Walker. Uh, the number one movie in the country uh, I don't know if, any, if anyone would remember this movie. By the way, like the number one movie before this movie was Titanic. Right. I mean, that movie was like number one. I think it was like number one for 15 weeks um, before this movie displaced it. Um, it's Lost in Space. Yeah. Do you, do you remember Lost in Like William Hurt is yeah. in this? No, I can't I saw, remember anyone else. I saw this movie too. And I like, I, I feel like there was, I don't know if it was it like a Titanic backlash that made a bunch of like probably young men and boys go see this movie and displace Titanic. I don't remember. Yeah. 
you know, I was I was looking at the movies that were released in '98, and I realized like I saw a lot of movies in '98. I think I just I just went to movies a lot. Yeah, college. Back then, and I would a lot, I would, of, a lot of movies in college. Yeah, yeah, and I would just see like if something. You know, I li- I, I went to school in a small town, so there wasn't like a ton to do. You know, I'd go see any garbage that came out. Like I saw City <laughs> of Angels. Remember City of Angels yeah, with Nick Cage and Mick, Meg Ryan? That's the that's the that's the movie that has that Goo Goo Dolls song in it. Uh, <laughs> I don't want the world to see me because I don't <laughs> think that they'd understand. I, that's I think that that's got to be '98 too. I'm I'm pretty sure that's '98 as well. Right? Yeah. Um, but Lost in Space, and uh, I don't really remember it. I think it was a piece of piece of shit though i'm pretty sure it was not yeah i think it was bad um number one tv show in the country seinfeld which you've probably heard of uh (laughs) er was also big see i'm very fascinated by this by this like top like four because okay you have seinfeld obviously a classic show you have er another classic show then you have veronica's closet yeah. Which was a Kirstie Alley show. Right. It must have been a must see TV show. It must have been like in that same lineup. Well, so there was always just, like the half hour between like that Thursday night block. Seinfeld and. Yeah. Between, right. So you'd have, you'd have friends and then something and then Seinfeld. Yeah. So I wonder if that was just in that sweet spot there. It must have been. And then and then Friends was after Veronica's Closet. Like Veronica's Closet had higher <laughs> ratings than Friends. And I was kind of surprised that Friends wasn't the number one show. Yeah. I mean, I knew Seinfeld was a huge hit. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought that, like, I mean, I think that was, that might have been the last season of Seinfeld. It was, like, toward the end of Seinfeld. So it was, like, and the show was really big that year. Um, But I always think of, I always think that Friends is more popular than Seinfeld. It seems like it is now, anyway. Yeah. Because I mean, of Netflix, it, maybe? I don't know. It's very much like the, uh, I don't know, Seinfeld is the uh, the hip, cool version, I guess, still, uh, compared to Friends being the more populous choice. I don't know. Their Friends is like the uh, sellout version of Seinfeld. Right. Right. Yeah, well, I don't know. It just seems like there's like a Friends reunion that's going to be coming out, and I feel like people are just going berserk because <laughs> and they're not even going to be doing anything they're just going to be like kind of standing in the same room <laughs> and getting paid like a hundred million dollars each and that's it um i wrote this in i wrote this in the outline i was like is 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 seinfeld the dead and his friends fish yeah and then my uh my counterpoint was yeah what's your counterpoint that uh is is seinfeld the dead and curb your enthusiasm fish because Curb Your Enthusiasm oh, see, yeah. is like the concentrated version of uh, Seinfeld, like so much so that it like alienates a lot of people, I think, because it's so uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> Whereas I could I could make that argument for Fish. But Curb comes out of the same tree as Seinfeld. So it's like you would need like like because like Larry David is like the Jerry Garcia of Seinfeld <laughs> really so there that's JGB uh Jerry Garcia band yeah maybe enthusiasm. or it's funny because like is Jerry Seinfeld because you think Jerry Seinfeld would be the Jerry of Seinfeld right. but I feel like Larry yeah, David is Jerry. the Jerry Garcia of Seinfeld 
Um, and the reason I would say yeah. maybe fish is like friends. And, and by the way, like I, I, I kind of hate my own comparison because I'm not really a friends fan and I feel like I'm disparaging fish by saying this, but I do think that <laughs> the comparison works in the sense that friends is sort of like a more upbeat, uh, and energetic version of Seinfeld, uh, which is what fish is to the dead. So that would be my the yeah. crux of the comparison there. And also because, you know, people who don't like friends always say that it rips off Seinfeld, whereas people who love Sein- people who love the dead and don't like fish think that fish is somehow ripping off or glomming onto like what the dead have done. So Yeah. I will leave that to our followers, our listeners here <laughs> to discuss whether this analogy holds any water. But um I was I was gonna say that maybe fish is more physically attractive than the dead, but no, that's not true. No, we know that's not true. I mean, you know, Bob. I mean, we all know Bobby is the Bob alone. Yeah, <laughs> he's the heartthrob. Um, right. The fish is like the rare band that's gotten more attractive with age, though. At least that's true. They all, <laughs> like they all look. They're in good shape now. They do. They look like um, this is like the best they've ever looked. I think. They got a they got a hot dad energy. They do. Whereas in the nineties they were like uh yeah, as nerdy as they come. So I kinda miss yeah, the good, good good for you guys. The Mike Gordon helmet hair. I I miss that. Oh man. You know? Because <laughs> I feel like that's so classic. And now he's got, you know, the yeah. Pompadour thing, which is it looks good. I mean he looks really good. He's in good shape, yeah. obviously. And the silver fox got some style. Right. Always got like the the flashy kicks, some scarves. Yeah, I mean, he's really uh, he's really grown into it. It's impressive. I mean, Fishman looks the same. He's sort of like he's, <laughs> yeah. he's like Larry Mullen Jr. and U two. You know, like he looks the same, but he's like very handsome. And Fishman, Fish, right. you know, Fishman, he's like adorable. You know, he's like yeah. he's, I don't know if he's like handsome, but he's like adorable. I think Paige has improved the most. Paige has got like the, improved the most. I think so. Okay. I think so because he's, Paige, he's lost a lot of hair. Yeah, and he's like he has, but he, you know, he's he's he, the beard. He's working with it, I guess. The he, beard and he's yeah, the beard looks good. You're right. And I did because he was losing it in the uh, in the 90s. It seems like too, and it, I don't know. Mm. I think the beard was a good decision for he, him. I think he's looking yeah. really good. Yeah, that, and that's like a, a farmhouse era decision <laughs> when they all showed up on the Conan O'Brien show with their beards. That was. That was another big news thing in uh, the fish community in the nineties. Oh man, I could I could go for days with this stuff. Like late nineties fish uh, breaking news. Uh, that that was that was a big one. Anyway, the island tour. So I want to before we dig into the April third show, I just want to do a quick rundown of like uh, the run overall, and I'll make this very quick. Yeah, like why did uh, we pick this but, show? Like you know, make a case for why we picked this yeah, show, yeah. Rob. First of all, the island tour. If so, as I said earlier, when Steve said he wanted to get into fish, I sent him a primer, which I thought was actually fairly brief, but is still like a page of text <laughs> to, defining, describing all the different eras of fish. Where, what, you know, here's a handful of shows for each era that you should start with. Uh, here's why you shouldn't start with the studio albums, which is a point of contention <laughs> between the two of us, uh, but just go straight to the live stuff. Um, but basically what I tell people if I need like a shorthand and they actually want to sample what Fish is like, I say, just go on Spotify, go on whatever streaming service you use because these shows have been officially released uh, and listen to the Island Tour. It's four shows. It's April 2nd through April 5th. 
they played two shows in Providence, Rhode Island, and two shows in Nassau, Long Island, which is why it's called the Island Tour. Um, but if you listen to these four shows, you get a good handle on all the things that Fish does well. Uh, and it's, you know, it's probably 12 hours of music, so it's no small commitment, but at least you're going to, like, you, you can never really get the full picture of Fish from just a single show. Uh, and they, these four shows do a good job of sort of defining the boundaries of what Fish can do. Uh, so all four shows are great. Uh, this is not your typical Fish run where they haven't played in a while and they need to sort of like a warm-up show to get their legs. April 2nd is really good. It has a really excellent second set, a really cool twist. It's got the debut of Birds. Some really interesting spacey stuff is going on. Uh, as Steve said earlier, April 4th is really good. I think that's probably sort of the deepest jamming of the whole run. And it gets like extremely spacey in the second set with like the second Birds of a Feather, which is really great and a, and a really amazing 2001. And then the fifth is kind of like the party show of the run where they're having such a good time that it eventually just becomes like the second set just becomes like a... I don't know, a half hour funk jam where they're kind of playing songs, but sort of rearranging them into sort of that funk style. Uh, so they're, they're all great, all worth a listen. Uh, but April 3rd is really like the pivot point of the run. And I would argue the pivot point of like fish leading up to this point and fish uh, forever after this point. So that's really the show we wanted to dial in on here. And it's probably the best show top to bottom, though they're all pretty close, I think as far as uh, overall quality. So April 3rd, if you can only pick one, pick April 3rd. Yeah, this would be, you know, is it fair to say that this is like the, the Dick's Picks Volume 4 for Fish? You know, if you were going to like just hand someone a show and you said, okay, you've never heard this band. I'm going to turn yeah. you onto this band. So I'm going to give you this show. Because I feel like it would be for me. I feel like they're some of my favorite Fish music ever is on this show and there's a and we'll we'll get to it but i mean the signature jam from this might be my favorite fish music in the same way that that like that the dark star from dick's picks four might be like my favorite grateful dead music or or that whole you know 90 minute chunk of music uh from the dark star through the other one through uh the love light um I mean, I could say that I think about the second disc of this uh, fish show of, of this of, of this fish set might be my favorite. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about the first set, right? Of of this show, um, and it starts off with a bang. I mean, we we have we have we have a Mike song that transitions into old home place into a Wikipod groove. Uh, just an incredible way to start a show, and and. You know, I think we're all used to, you know, whether you listen to the Dead or you listen to Fish, you're used to the you're used to the conventions of like, of like a first set versus a second set. The first set is usually uh, more song oriented. You feel like you're warming up. There's gonna maybe be one jammy song, but it's not gonna get too out there. And then the second set is where they're gonna really kind of go for the gusto and and really stretch out. And you hear that in in uh, in this show, they're throwing that out the window because both sets are going to have lots of exploration in them, and and it really starts off with these uh, three songs. 
Right. And like part of what jumped out to people right away about the island tour, back in the days where you couldn't listen to these shows live, you just saw the set list come over the internet, uh, usually like the following morning, is that all four of the shows open up with like a big jam vehicle for fish. So whereas you would traditionally sort of like ramp up the energy of a show and then have a more exploratory second set, uh, every show of this run hits the ground running with something that gets deep right away. Uh, And so that was kind of like, that's the sort of on paper, like signal to fish fans that these are some serious shows that you got to hear right away. And so Mike's song is one of the oldest fish songs, which is why it has such a boring name as Mike's song because it's the kind of thing that young bands call their names. <laughs> like, here's the song that our bass player sings. Um, but it's if you're a dead fan coming to Fish, the Mike song, Weekapaw Groove bookends work a little bit like your uh, Help on the Way, Slipknot, Franklin's Tower, except uh, typically there's a song in the middle called I Am Hydrogen, which they sort of started phasing out a little bit in the in the late 90s and they would drop in a different song every night uh so for this one they dropped in a bluegrass song that they had covered quite frequently in the 90s called uh the old home place so it it makes for kind of a weird genre jump (laughs) in the middle of this 30 minutes or so of music uh but it's uh something that only fish could pull off i would say and the Wikipod Groove, I think especially, is like just ridiculously good. And there's a there's a, there's an extended section in here where they're riffing on Cross-Eyed and Painless, which uh, was yeah. it's obviously a Talking head song from from Remain in Light, and that entered into Fish World uh, for their Halloween show in 1996. They covered that album in its entirety. By the way, I'll, when I was getting into Fish. That particular set was a bridge for me to getting into fish because I, I already loved Talking Heads and I loved Remain in Light. And, of course, we talked a little bit about Talking Heads in our previous episode, talking about the Talking Heads in relation to the Grateful Dead. Talking Heads, I, I would say, are as much of an influence on fish as the Grateful Dead, arguably even more, certainly in terms of the, of, of, of their sonic approach. Um and uh, those songs from Remain in Light have been, I mean, especially Cross-Eyed and Painless, uh, have been you know cornerstones of fish sets like for the last like you know twenty five years basically. But the jam in this yeah. song, it's not credited as Cross-Eyed and Painless, but they're they're riffing on that song, and it's just an incredible jam. Like and it's just a great example of how they're able to steer into that and steer out of it seamlessly.
Yeah, and all these, all this stuff we've been talking about with how Fish realized that they were capable of a sort of collective democratic improvisational style was really seeded by doing Remain in Light for Halloween 96. I think it took a while for it to be fully integrated into what the band did, like night after night. But that particular Halloween cover was really like flipped a switch for them, I think. And it's also like, you know, in addition to the Talking Heads being a huge influence, they've also they've always been big fans of Brian Eno, who, of course, like was producing and working with the Talking Heads at that point. Uh, and what you're going to hear sort of even in this show and then throughout the rest of the 90s is a big influence of like sort of Brian Eno soundscapes and textural improvisation uh, that is something that the dead, I think, dabbled in a little bit. And it was sort of what they were going for with the sort of MIDI drum space experiments, but never quite brought into the the run of the actual show like fish would manage to do in the late 90s i mean with fish is it just a matter of the fact that they just had one drummer forever you know and i mean i feel like one of the great what ifs of dead history of course is like what if mickey hadn't come back into the band because there's lots of people who love one drummer dead and when mickey comes back you know, I think there's some real attributes to having Mickey in the band, but one of the negatives is that as a rhythm section, it's really hard to always be on the same page if you have two drummers. And Fish has one drummer. He's a great drummer. And, you know, they don't have to worry about the rhythm section going sideways, you know, when you only have one guy. Right. I, mean, I mean, do you feel like that is, you know, an essential difference between these bands, like in, in terms of being able to have that kind of consistency, uh, you know, as a performing unit. When you talk about like the communication that's inherent to Fish, uh, having played together for so long with the same four people, and how they always seem to make the right decision and always go the same direction, um, I think having only one drummer definitely makes a huge difference with that. And I also think that like Fisherman is just a better drummer than either Billy or Mickey, which might be a controversial right. thing to say. But I mean, this jam is a perfect example through that whole cross-eyed and painless sort of jam theme tease part. Uh, it, it like it's impossible that it's only one person playing all those drums but it actually is so he can kind of give you the complexity of a two drummer band in just one person and just the flexibility that you have uh with only having four musicians uh you know interacting versus five or six or seven in some eras of the dead i think really makes a big difference as far as you know just how uh fluid they can be as they move through jam sections or between songs so on our on our outline we have the next four tracks grouped together and you you i think wrote a pertinent note in our outline where you said this is the first set segment of the first set just in terms of that thing i was talking about before where first sets tend to be more conservative this is i guess the straightest part of the set although i think that there's some really great moments uh, in these four songs. But anyway, we have Train Song, Billy Breathes, Beauty of My Dreams, and and Dogs Stole Things. Um, I want to talk about Billy Breathes for a moment. I mean, unless you have something that you're dying to say about Train Song. <laughs> no, it's not a, not the greatest song live. <laughs> but it's... I mean, I think it's... 
I, I think of it more of like a, as a segue type song. I, yeah, I think yeah. it's a night. I mean, it's not really. It's not there that often. It's it's pleasant while it's there, and I always feel like okay, we're sort of exiting the jam in sort of like a kind of a chilled out way, and we're going to go into the next song. So it it gets us to Billy Breeze, I think, in a pretty good way. And you mentioned earlier, you made an allusion to me, I think, being a defender of fish ballads. Right. And this might be the most controversial stance that I've taken on this podcast so far. But yeah, I am a fan of songs like Waste, and I will defend Waiting in the Velvet Sea. (laughs) And I am a big fan of Billy Breeze. I do think that this is one of the best fish ballads. Yeah. And I think it's like one of my favorite, just like as a song. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's a great song. It's like one of my favorite kind of just fish songs. Right. As opposed, because I tend to think that a lot of fish fans think of songs as jam vehicles first. And I think that's also true of a lot of dead fans too. Um, Although I think the dead obviously have a much stronger songs as songs book. You know, just they have a lot of standards that you could, that a lot of people who aren't the dead have played. Um, whereas Fish doesn't really have that, um, but Billy Breeze I think is is a beautiful song, and I and I love this version. I will say that like when I'm trying to get people into Fish, one of my gateway drugs is playing them the Billy Breeze from two seventeen ninety seven, yeah, which I think is the definitive version of that song, and it's beautiful. And you made a note about this that I think is actually. Uh, really astute, which is that I think Billy Breeze is um, the closest in a way that Fish kind of gets to more of like a Grateful Dead type songwriting style. Mm -hmm. Like there's something very kind of Stella Blue about this song. Right. Even though the Dead don't really utilize this song in that way, I feel like Billy Breeze, I'm sure there's instances where it appears in the second set but i feel like it's generally a first set song you know whereas stella blue is treated as this climactic song often coming out of out of space you know like the 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 scary you know psychedelic jam and then they play this beautiful epic ballad billy breeze isn't placed that way i think it could have that although fish doesn't really jam that way in their second set so maybe it wouldn't have the same effect but anyway this does have that same thing where it's a beautiful song that builds to, you know, like a two or three minute guitar solo by Trey. Um, and it's beautiful and I and it always works for me. I think it's like the context here is important for people that have listened to a lot of Fish more recently. Um, there's a lot of really earnest, emotional Trey songs now, but <laughs> right. but there weren't at this point so much like it was kind of startling to fish fans i think (laughs) sort of in the late 90s when uh you know fish and tom marshall their lyricists started writing songs that were this like nakedly emotional uh and it took some adjusting for people uh but i think you know I, i i like billy breeze a lot i have my issues with a lot of fish ballads but billy breeze is one of my favorites and yeah the sort of my thinking and writing down that it was sort of a one of the more deady moments in this show kind of boils down to the fact that it actually has this like featured tray solo in a way that a lot of fish songs 
kind of seem to try to avoid uh, certainly later on in their career uh having just like a featured solo part rather than a more like group improvisational style uh so trey kind of gets to show off his big guitar hero emotional solo at the end of the song though it's not very he he doesn't really have a very jerry style like that's kind of one of the interesting grateful dead fish comparison uh places where the comparison breaks down is that trey i don't think sounds a lot like jerry he can do jerry and he has at like the fairly well concert he did he did jerry quite well But his style is, I, I would almost say more like David Gilmory or Hendrixy, uh, when depending on what sort of mode he's playing in. Right. Uh, and like this one, it feels very Pink Floydy to me. It feels more like a like the comfortably numb solo than anything you would hear from a Jerry ballad at a Grateful Dead show. But yeah, it's it's nice. It's interesting, and I don't want to go too far on this tangent, but you know we haven't really talked a lot about Fare Thee Well, which. Um, in a way, I thought would have settled any type of dead fish conflict, you know, because yeah. it seemed like me too. Yeah, you know, the dead were very deliberately bringing, you know, Trey into the fold, and I, I think, by all accounts, I mean Trey killed it at those shows. Ah, and, yeah. and and he he not only performed really well, but he was really a leader on stage. I think in a lot of ways. I mean, it seemed like he was. Uh, helping to corral those guys together in a really effective way. <laughs> I mean, w- yeah. I mean, right? I mean, is that isn't that fair to say? I mean, I feel like he, like, I feel like him yeah. and Bruce Hornsby, uh, like, were really kind of holding that together in a lot of ways. Um, well, and it's that's why I here's to this episode's uh, required Dead and Company reference <laughs> is that that's. You know, so I went to two of the three Chicago Fairly Well shows and I had a great time. And I don't listen back to those shows very often. They're a little sloppy. Uh, but the the subplot of those shows that I really appreciated was whatever skepticism there was around Trey being the sort of fake Jerry of that run. Uh, you could watch it like melting away from all the old heads that were like, oh, God, fish. Like, we we hate these young whippersnappers and then eventually coming to appreciate Trey for what he brought to the table. And I mean, he walked that balance beam perfectly between 
replicating what Jerry would do and nailing like his tone on a lot of songs and nailing the solos like note for note when it called for it, but also bringing his own style to the table. And so making it something that was his own and something new and something modern and like engaging and not just like a weird, creepy, like hologram Jerry performance. Um, And by the by the end of that run. So uh, Addicts of My Life is the last song they played. And during Addicts of My Life on the side of the stage, they like uh, put up uh, one by one pictures of all the people who played with the dead and then all the people who uh, played at uh, Fairly Well. Uh, and Trey got maybe like one of the biggest, I would say like the third biggest ovation of the night (laughs) after like Jerry and Bob probably. Uh, and it was like one of the most like emotional moments of a very emotional show for me just to see everybody like embracing Trey for like stepping up to this enormous challenge of like stepping into Jerry Garcia's shoes. Uh, And I was like, oh, this is it. The dead and fish crowds have fully come together. (laughs) And then as we said, like we learned on social media that that's not true at all. (laughs) But like, that's like, that's what appeals to me about, you know, what Trey did in those shows is like miles beyond what I hear in limited listening i will i will admit from like the john mayer dead and company incarnation is that i don't think it has that like finely threaded line between sort of uh replication and ingenuity right that trey brought to it well i was gonna say that like and i haven't listened to those shows since they were played but my memory of it is that trey still sounded like he was he was doing jerry stuff but he still sounded like himself and like I yeah. don't, and he, and he, whereas I think Mayer is like openly, like replicating Jerry's tone, and I think he does it really well. And you yeah. know, and um, I guess you know, this is another tangent that we could go down for a long time. It's like, what what do you want <laughs> out of Dead and Company? Do you want them to be, you know, like a new band that like takes that music in new directions, or do you want them to be essentially a tribute band where you can go and you can hear these songs that you love in the way that you know them. And I feel like most yeah. people probably want the the latter. And and that's what they're delivering to that audience and 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 Mayer's doing that. So, you know, I think that's fine for the people that want to go see that, you know, ha- go and and have a good time. But yeah, I think what Trey was able to do and and you said this really well that he did justice to the songs but he was still himself. And he did that because really his personality is probably too strong to do anything else. And, right. But he was still able to make it work in the context of those songs, which I think was a really hard thing to do. Uh, can I just say that uh, Dog Stole Things? We don't need to go deep on Dog Stole Things. I like Dog Stole <laughs> Things. I'll defend this song. I like, I've always, I always enjoy this song when I hear it on late 90s, you know, fish bootlegs i mean i'm uh, it's not my favorite song in the world but there's something about it and this is going to sound like kind of a zany comparison but it has like a sugary type vibe to it to me like it has that same sort of pacing to it it feels like slightly 50s it's kind of like a 50s like rolling groove to it a little bit that is very pleasant to me and i don't think it's like a great song but it's a very easy song for me to listen to. And it's, and it's always a song that like, it never overstays its welcome to me. 
so I, I I tend to enjoy hearing it when when it comes up. I know you're not really a fan of that song. I I mean I I just consider it kind of a throwaway. Like it's not something I'm clamoring to hear, and I think it's funny because it always fools people into thinking it's Mound at first because it right. has kind of <laughs> the same drum intro. And uh, but I mean I I, I I think what's interesting about Dog Stole Things, like sort of vis-a-vis this fish dead comparison, is that. At this point, Fish has something like 300, 400 songs that they can that they'll play in a given year, like unique different songs that they'll play in 50 or 60 shows of touring in a typical year. And they just have this incredibly deep songbook at this point, which has all these like weird quirky songs and weird covers that they only play every like once or twice a year, which is another part of the experience that I think is very different from The Dead who would mix up their set lists, but they were always kind of pulling from a, you know, a group of, at any given era, like 40, 50 songs, right? So it, it you don't get quite the variety of set lists that you get from Fish. And it's something that really appeals to me as a Fish fan, is that you have so many songs that you could expect to hear on a given night, and so many things that they can sort of dust off, obscurities that they can pull out. Uh, and play, you know, rarities every once in a while. Uh, whereas with the dead, it's not quite that way, and that's something that I always get just a little bit frustrated with that they don't have quite as 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 much material to pull from. Well, I think in the seventies, like some of their great years, really, the set lists don't vary as dramatically as say they did during Fish's prime years. I will say, though, that one of the things I love about the 80s dead is that I, I think there is more variety, especially as you get into the later 80s, because they're also starting to play wackier covers at that time. Um, you know, I, there's a Dick's Picks coming up. I believe it, it, it's the uh, it's the 91 Dick's Picks. I think it's Dick's Picks 18, or it might be seven, no, it's six pick seventeen. They do a song from uh, Paul McCartney's "Flowers in the Dirt," you know, which <laughs> was right. like the new Paul McCartney record uh, at that time. Uh, so you know, there's things like that that come up, like in in later Dead Years, that I think is pretty pretty cool. Um, okay, well we've we we spent more time on dog stole things than I expected. Let's talk about <laughs> a very significant song in fish history, which is Reba coming up next. And this is a brilliant version of this song. And yeah. you were looking for a dead analog to this and you came up with an interesting choice. Yeah, so I picked, you know, we did the dead analog thing a little bit, though it, it, it breaks down pretty quickly because there's not a lot of one-to-ones here. <laughs> uh, no, no. But yeah, I chose Morning Dew, uh, which is like a little bit of a stretch uh, because obviously Morning Dew has this sort of like slow burn build over the course of the song and it's a very folky song that has a very folk standard sort of arrangements uh that they just kind of blow out into this big grateful dead version uh whereas reba as you pointed out is it has a very classic like sort of fish arrangement where it is a really fussy proggy song uh for like five or six minutes and then it sort of breaks free into this open ascending jam territory for the rest of its runtime uh but i feel like emotionally they sort of hit the same point where it 
you know, fish doesn't go straight to emotions in the way that the dead does. Like they have to do these sort of tightly rehearsed, uh, through orchestrated, uh, incredibly complicated. Uh, Reba has a fugue in it, which I only learned what a fugue was because I was trying to understand what is going on in Reba. Uh, you know, these very like musicology type uh, features to it that the dead, you know, they didn't really like doing that kind of stuff. Uh, they have to kind of get through that stuff to all get on the same page before they can create sort of the cohesive, purely emotional jam at the end. Um, but you know, they, they give me a similar feeling like the, the, the jam of Reba and a morning zoo where it can be this sort of like, uh, you know, slow wave of emotion over several minutes that can build up to something really climactic at the end. Yeah. For me with Reba, it's always about getting through the prog part to the free part, you know, and I, (laughs) and I appreciate the prog part. You know, it's not that I don't like it, but like I'm waiting for the free part. And because I know that that's like when the fireworks are going to come out. And um, and I feel like this jam in particular, I, you know, I, I don't know where it ranks in like in the history of Reba's or anything, but it is, I think, just a great slow burn version of it. And I think like what like the rhythm section is doing in this song and like what Paige is doing in this song, again, it just underscores you know the ensemble strength of this band because you know you think of Reba and you think about essentially Trey wailing at some point, like you know he's gonna just rip off a great guitar solo. Um, but I feel like there's like a lot of other things happening in the jam part that I that is like really captivating to me, where it almost sounds like. Um, I don't know. It has like kind of like a jazziness to it uh, that is uh, or like a Riders on the Storm type vibe, if I can make a positive Doors <laughs> comparison. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's beautiful. And then, of course, that sets up, you know, the trade whaling that's going to be happening, which is great. You know, I'm not trying to downplay that at all because i think the tray playing on this is, is, is just beautiful but his ability to go from to not just be a soloist but also contribute as a rhythm player you know which is i think happening throughout this show and throughout this stand um is really notable and, and allowing the rest of the band to kind of shine through on that on the jam yeah yeah i mean the the uh the counterpoint in fish is never boring like, there's never a point where Trey is just soloing over the rest of the band, you know, doing the backing band thing of just hitting the changes. Like, you can always find something interesting to hear in the other three when one of them is is taking the solo. So Reba always pays off for that. Yeah, absolutely. And then we end the first set with one of Rob's favorite fish songs <laughs> of all time, which is My Soul. Yeah, that's and... that's not true. My soul. So partially from when I saw a lot of shows in the late 90s, I think this is biased to me, but they used to play My Soul a lot and I got really sick of My Soul. And I, you know, we've talked a lot about how Fish handles Roots music compared to the dead and like Fish Blues just never works for me. Like it just always sounds bar bandy to me. And, you know, if there's one thing I could excise from the Fish catalog, it would be 
songs like My Soul or Funky Bitch or I guess I can handle a Jesus Left Chicago because I like hearing Paige sing. But uh, yeah, there's just a lot of songs in this sort of wing that I could do without. So we should say that this is a cover of a song by a name named, it's by a guy named Clifton, is it Shinye? I'm, I'm butchering his last name. He's a 50s singer. Yeah, given that it's Zydeco, it's probably, yeah, sort of your French Creole pronunciation. I got to say, I don't... Okay, so you mentioned Funky Bitch, because I was going to mount a a defense of Fish Blues here for a minute. And I think that the difference for me between, like, Fish Blues and the Grateful Dead Blues, because we've taken a lot of shots at Grateful Dead Blues, particularly in the 80s when they reverted to playing a really long dirgy blues song in like the second or third slot of the first set, you know, little red rooster yeah. walking blues. Uh, what's the other one? There's like another big blues song that they would always play. Wang, wang, dang, doodle. CC Rider. CC Rider. CC Rider is the big one. Um, and I think the difference between the dead and, and dead blues and fish blues is that fish blues is typically upbeat. It's 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 up tempo, mm-hmm. sure. And so to me, it it has an element of fun to it, at least. That and look, I am more of a blues rock guy than you are. I have a stronger blues affinity probably than you do. I will say that before I got into Fish, I knew the song "Funky Bitch" from the original version, which is by Sun Seals, who's a who's a wow, South okay. Side of Chicago guy. Uh, it's on a record called mm-hmm. Live and Burning by Sun Seals, which is a really great live record. And Sun Seals, you know, he was from that era of of uh, Chicago blues, like where it was essentially blues rock at that point. Um, you know, obviously a lot yeah. of blues rock bands took a lot from, you know, Muddy Waters and Holly Wolf. But then there was the the generation of blues people that came out in the 70s and 80s especially like a lot of the Alligator Records people. And now I'm going to really show off my blues rock knowledge here. But, you know, who were, you know, you know, people like Albert Collins and um, people of that ilk uh, that I think were definitely tipping a cap to like the blues rock bands of that time and, and going after that same audience. Anyway, I think Fish, in much, in much the same way that we were talking before about their approach to Roots music, being perhaps less straightforwardly reverent than the dead. You know, like when, when Bob Weir plays CC Ryder or Wang Dang Doodle, you feel like he's, you know, you feel like there's a, it, it, there's an attempt at authenticity maybe with the dead in approaching that music that Fish does not have. Fish is approaching this music as party music, and I appreciate it on that level. So my soul, I don't mind it. I don't mind it as a set closer. And um, I think in terms of just discussing how Fish and the Dead approach the blues, I think it's an interesting example of how their approaches differ. And I th- I definitely prefer, I would say, Funky Bitch to My Soul in terms of a Fish blues song. I don't know, like, if yeah. would you prefer Funky Bitch to My Soul? Well... I would to my soul, just because I would prefer probably 98% of Fish songs to my soul. (laughs) Um, But I also want to add that I did see Sun Seals. I actually saw him twice. Um, Once at a Fish Festival, because he was like a guest star there. Uh, But I saw him once in my hometown of Downers Grove playing at a brewery. 
uh, where I went <laughs> with a couple other fish fans because we were like, oh, hey, the guy that wrote Funky Bitch, let's go see him perform. And it was like, you know, like 100 people there. Uh, and when he played Funky Bitch, like we all had our like head like thrown back <laughs> by how much better it was than the fish version because <laughs> like we had never <laughs> I, I think i actually bothered to listen to the original funky bitch and so it's like the uh you know mike does a fine job of singing it but it's not a south side chicago blues guy singing it <laughs> and so right. as soon as he like opened his mouth and sang the first line we're all like Oh yeah, this is what this song actually is, not the like Vermont blues, <laughs> Vermont white guy blues version. It's kind of cool though that like Fish would have covered Sun Seals, you know, because it, it is a less well-known person to cover than like a Howlin' Wolf song, you yeah, know, which is what the Dead were doing. Yeah, yeah. So you know, right? Th- that is more of like a record nerd type choice to cover Sun Seals. Yeah, absolutely. Going into set two here. Now we're really getting into the meat of this show. We have the debut of Roses Are Free, which is... Um, well, it's not, it's not the debut. But not the just, debut. Uh, they, they debuted in, in December. Uh, to do a fish, a quick fish fact check. Yeah, yes. This is the third time they played it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, set two is... I mean, it's a perfect fish set. And it's like... It made me think, like, there's not that many, I would say, perfect dead sets in history. Like, Cornell might be the closest thing to it that I can think of. Like, sort of iconic, perfect dead sets. Because usually the dead played such long sets with so many songs that it's like, here's a 45-minute portion of this set, which is, like, classic, iconic, historic dead music. But then they also played, like, three Chuck Berry covers after that. (laughs) Nobody ever talks about that. Um, But this is, like a good it's like a good solid hour it's four songs everything segues into each other it's just a perfect fish like suite of music do you think uh, that i'm just wondering like do you think that fish was at all influenced by the knowledge that people were taping their shows and they were going to be studying their shows in a way that the dead probably weren't i mean i knew that obviously the dead knew that people were taping their shows but i don't know right 
I, I wonder if maybe Fish had a different appreciation of how their shows were going to be studied after they were played that maybe the dead didn't yeah. have. I haven't thought of that, but I could I could see that, especially because, you know, by all accounts, they were collecting dead tapes, so they would have been tape consumers themselves and know what they liked and didn't like about sort of the overall structure of a show as it is presented on a tape down the line. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't put it past them. I wonder that. So anyway, so they this was the third time that they played Roses Are Free. This is a song by Ween from the 1994 album... Uh, chocolate and cheese and um you know for me like i i've been a ween fan for a long time i was a ween fan long before i was a fish fan and it is it's funny to me now that i'm a i'm a bigger fish fan i would say now that i'm a ween fan even though i still love ween um just comparing those two bands because ween is I think now considered at least a jam adjacent band. <laughs> yeah. It, but like for a long time, they had a very, you know, anti attitude towards the jam scene and really an attitude that I would have had for a long time. And they sort of had to come around to the fact that like a lot of jam fans like them in large part because of fish, you know, playing this song. Um, but it's interesting to me that like Ween has never fully embraced being a jam band, and I feel like in a way that's like held them back hmm. uh, from you know. Like I always feel like you know, like when I first got into Fish, I I found myself wishing oh, I wish they were more like Ween, and now when I listen to Ween, it's like I kind of wish they were more like Fish, just in terms <laughs> yeah. of like you know playing more adventurous sets, uh, even though Ween does do some jamming. Um, but certainly not as much as, as fish does. Um, but I don't know. I just look at that as a very kind of interesting example of the stigma that still exists in the jam scene and how Mm -hmm. in a way I feel like because ween has never gotten over that in a weird way, I feel like that's held them back ultimately. Yeah. So I was like, I was I I still am not a Ween fan. I never really have gotten into them, but I, I I think of they're interesting to me in relationship to Fish, because we've talked about sort of the cultural context of Fish with like the other jam bands that were hitting it big in the '90s, your Dave Matthews bands and Blues Travelers and Spin Doctors. Um, but I think it's equally accurate to consider Fish uh, as sort of contemporaries of the other Electra Records bands, which is the label they were signed to at the time, which is Ween and They Might Be Giants, who are both sort of quirky 90s bands that never really fit into an easy pigeonhole genre-wise, whereas Ween and They Might Be Giants kind of stumbled into novelty radio hits. Uh, I feel like Electra was like, Fish is another band that we could just like stumble into a big hit from and it never really happened but they got big on their own terms uh so it's as far as contemporaneous covers go it's actually really like appropriate to me that fish pulled uh like a you know a pretty minor ween song right like i have no frame of reference for 
whether roses are free is was considered like a part of the ween canon before fish pulled it out was i mean it, it, i think it, I, it's a song that i enjoy i mean like i i knew this song you know really well before i i, I even knew that fish ever played it and i always liked roses are free um, but yeah, it wasn't like one of their like signature songs or anything. It wasn't, I mean, like push the little daisies was the most famous song that we right. was associated with at this point. Um, and there were other singles from, uh, chocolate and cheese, you know, freedom of 76 was a single from that record. And, yeah. uh, you know, and the, you know, take me away is another, like that in a way that would have been more obvious for fish to cover like a song like that. Um, I was just going to say quick. And this is like another big tangent that we could go down that I won't go down too far. But, you know, you mentioned all those Electra bands. Another band that I would group into there is another band that had like their debut record that came out in 92, which is Pavement. And I feel like now we, like, I feel like I listen to Pavement now and they sound like a jam band. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Stephen Malkmus in his solo career has really embraced the jamminess uh, with the Jicks, you know, and you know, he is like a big indie jam, you know, pioneer in that regard. Right. Um, you know, certainly like in, 19, in 1992, no one would have really compared Fish and Pavement and Ween and They Might Be Giants, but I think that They Might Be Giants is more of like an outlier maybe just because they are more overtly funny and they're not very jammy. Um, right, but um, I think those three bands have more connective tissue in retrospect than maybe than they appeared to at the time. Um, but we can table that for another day. I think that could be a discussion. <laughs> I think the big thing that we want to talk about here is the jam that comes out right. of "Roses Are Free," and I think it's interesting because, like on on the disc, the jam is its own separate track. You know, this isn't yeah. credited as like a like a half hour long "Roses Are Free," although I've seen it credited that way in other places. I mean, is it generally thought of as like a separate jam? Well, it's called Nassau Jam on the record. There's a really like boring bookkeeping this like reason for that, and I'm not sure why this changed. But there used to be something to do with how royalties were paid out, where like the length of a cover meant like determined how much money you would pay to the songwriters so like okay so if it was only like a four minute cover it would be like your standard fee but if it was a half hour cover it would end up being like you know multiples of that standard fee so you see this a lot in like live fish releases where it'll be like the song if it's a cover song with a big jam it'll be the song part and then it'll be a jam that is just called like pittsburgh jam or wherever it was played so i think that's what happened here it wasn't like an artistic decision to say this is a separate piece of music it was like we don't want to pay uh, Dean and Gene Ween, <laughs> the above market value for covering Roses Are Free. We're just going to pay them the standard rate and then, you know, uh, attribute this to our own songwriting. So, yeah. Well, Sorry to puncture that theory. <laughs> but no, that's, that's interesting. I, that, I love that explanation. Well, let's just say, okay, since it's credited as its own track, I will say I think Nassau Jam, for me, is up there with like the greatest fish music of all time. Uh-huh. Like this jam, yeah. I think. It just sounds like butter to me. 
And mm-hmm. what they're able to do here, and we've hit, you know, I was saying this earlier, just the mind meld between these four guys at this moment in time. It's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And again, I think the distinctive thing about this jam is that unlike a lot of jam bands, it's not a lead guitarist soloing and leading the way throughout. Trey is often playing rhythm guitar in this jam. He is basically melting into... There's really not a lot of soloing in this jam. They're really playing together at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not boring. (laughs) It's not just people vamping. It's like... They're creating this like stew of like funk and sort of ambient music and the, again I, I I go back to the word butter. It just sounds very buttery to me, and I I just I, I just think it's it's incredible. And, it, and to me, like if we're gonna talk about the dead versus fish, I just think the the, the four people. You know, being mixed at the same time, you can hear all four people very clearly, all contributing equally, and and going off, you know, into this sort of netherworld of of, of sonic exploration together, and and, and 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 not really feeling like one person is 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 dominating. Um, I feel like that's just so uniquely fish, and I don't, and I know there's examples of the dead doing that, but I don't know. Like there's there's things that the dead do better than fish do in a live setting, but this specific thing I think is fish's strength, and I, I I don't even think that the dead quite get to this kind of level. Right. Well, it's like I I, I describe this jam as like the precise moment where 1997 turns into 1998 for fish, which is like a very zoomed in fish nerd way of thinking about it but what i really mean by that is like we've talked about fall 97 was fish getting into a lot of funk jams but sort of the underrated like component of the fall 97 sound is that they were also getting into these like very noisy almost shoegazy like hendrix uh band of gypsies type jams as well um that were very like textural and very very noisy and very loud sort of like the opposite of the funk jam which was very quiet and simple and uh sharp and what this jam really does is bring those two things together and create like a sort of maximalist funk jam style which is very much influential for what they're going to try and do like throughout the rest of the 90s and into the into the next century uh and so what you're talking about i think is like dead on like trey's playing a lot of rhythm guitar but it's like he's sinking back into the sound of all four of them playing in sync and a lot of the 97 jams sort of do this like it's fun but it's a little hokey like breakdown funk jam where they each take turns playing a solo and then they do sort of the wah pedal funk in between uh which that never happens in this it just turns into this like sort of textural exploration uh, where they're, you know, again, calling back to like the Brian Eno influence that I think is right. very strong at, in Fish at this time, where they are improvising not so much in terms of like solo counterpoint, but in terms of like, here are sort of feelings of sound. Here are soundscapes that we can create cohesively 
and let's see where that takes us. Uh, and that's really like where unique, where Fish finds its sort of unique voice of improvisation at this point. And this this jam, it just like crystallizes that exact point, which is really fascinating to hear. Yeah, and it's it's like this funk music that isn't necessarily for dancing. It's like it's massaging your brain, you know, type yeah. music. And yeah, I think the Eno comparison is dead on. How Eno was influenced by obviously African music and and there was there was definitely like a strong groove element to what he was doing, but he was also not going at it at a straightforward direction. Again, I'm gonna use the arty term here to describe it. It's an arty sort of deconstructive approach to this kind of music where it totally has a groove to it and it, it works on that level, but it's also not, like you said, like sort of the more straightforward, hacky jam band thing where, right. yeah, it's it, it's just purely just going for sort of the obvious good time party music type thing. You know, Fish has that good time party music thing in their jeans, but in these jams, they're, they're taking it to some other place. Right. And this is also where I think like it's very much in the lineage of what the dead I think were trying to do with space, where they were also jamming with textures instead of with melodies necessarily. Um, and I like I, I give them a lot of credit for trying to do that, especially when they were playing stadiums with like 50,000 people and they're doing weird MIDI feedback experiments. Um, but the dead were never quite able at 
able to achieve integrating that exploration with like uh, a show that is still sort of like a party, <laughs> like a dance party sort of vibe. Whereas Fish like perfected the fact, as you said, that it could make you dance, but also massage your brain. Like it's both at the same time. It's not like a chin stroking avant-garde jazz club experiment, but it, but it's also not just like, here's just some funk to get down to. It's like, both at the same time which is like a really difficult thing to pull off and that's what the what fish does better than anybody else i mean i think we're i think where the dead were able to do that probably most successfully is and we talked about this in our last episode is the midsection between um you know basically in the scarlet fire you know like where you're in scarlet and you're not quite in scarlet anymore but you haven't quite hit fire yet Fire on the Mountain. I feel like that is the most successful sort of like body music that the dead made where it's good time music. You know, you you, want to hoist the beer with your, with your buddies. Like when, 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 when Scarlet Begonias comes on, but then it kind of goes into this more spacey, funky area going into Fire on the Mountain and like in the most successful Scarlet Fires, I think pull that off like exceptionally well. So I think that's where they were able to do it. Um, They just didn't live in that zone as much as Fish did. You know, again, there were other things that I think the dead did really well that Fish has never been able to touch. Um, And of course, I think in terms of songwriting, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, the dead, I think, are in a whole other league from Fish uh, in, in terms of that. But yeah, this this sort of like arty funk thing that they were able to do um, in '98, I think, was so special. Um, it's interesting. I mean, really, I think this is the marquee. Obviously, uh, this is the the star of this set uh, of uh, of this entire show. I will say though that the jam that comes after that, when they go into Piper, um, is like a close second for me, and. I, uh-huh especially like revisiting this show really drove it home for me. And, you know, we, we've been talking about one of the core differences between dead and fish being that fish tends to be a lighter band or, or more kind of like fun loving band in a lot of ways. Piper is an example of how they could go dark, um, especially at this moment in their career. Um, and, you know, when we get into 99 and 2000, they're starting to go dark for sort of, <laughs> you know, backstage reasons. You know, there's like some dark vibes entering into the band that sort of bleed into the music. Um, but on Piper, as they go into the jam here, um, it really is like a, a great example of, I guess, dark fish, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, it's both because it's like the old slow Piper that just built and built and built forever like they played the same chords for seven minutes <laughs> in this song and it's like the new pipers now they get right to the chase and then they jump right into the jam uh but i love this old version because it's very like shoegazy and very like ruminative in how long they just like settle down and focus on one chord progression uh, instead of jumping between a lot of different things. Like you t- we talked about Reba and how fussy that song is, and this is like the exact opposite. Like there's no fugues. It's just we're going to play these four chords in sort of like a mantra 
style until we like launch off into something else. And in this case, yeah, you're right. The 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 whole back half of the song is this really dark, gnarly, uh, sort of spooky jam, which is just like uh, you know, Trey hitting these this weird uh sort of aggressive chord progression and uh yeah the whole band just sort of finding a texture around it which is really cool and i like i I love dark fish i love spacey fish and this is sort of the the birth of that sound in a lot of ways where they were realizing that they could pull off uh you know not just sort of party fish but also uh maybe a more cerebral or more uh challenging fish as well and i feel like this is a zone that the dead lived in more naturally maybe than yeah than fish did i think they, they were able to access the darkness you know a little easier than than fish did or 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 more often anyway but uh that is one of the things that sets this era of fish apart is that is their ability to to, to kind of go evil and i feel like ghost was another vehicle for them at this time, like where those yeah. jams could get kind of get pretty dark, especially as fish itself got dark, you know, in 99, 2000, some of those fish, some of those ghosts from that era, um, get kind of bleak in a, in a, in a very cool and, uh, captivating way. Um, the rest of the second set here, I don't know how much we want to delve into. Like we're already going long in this episode. <laughs> we both have a lot to Which say about clear. fish. Yeah. Um, but you know, Love and Cup, Love, Love and Cup. We probably don't have to go too too deep on Rolling Stones cover. Obviously, this is like one of the most played covers uh, in Fish's catalog. I have to say that I didn't know the lyrics yeah. to Loving Cup until I heard Fish play it. I, I I couldn't really understand the lyrics on XL on Main Street ever. So, like, when they say, like, what a beautiful buzz, right. I didn't know Mick Jagger Fish was Fish definitely that. enunciates you know? a lot better than so Mick Jagger and a... Keith Richards, at least circa Exile, uh, <laughs> right, Chateau, right. <laughs> era, Rolling Stones. Yeah, it's true. And then um, then Run Like an Antelope is the set closer for, for set two. Right. And... Though it's worth noting in the, in the Loving Cup that it features a stage invasion. Right by a fan uh you can actually watch this show on youtube uh if you you know type in the usual stuff you can find like a nice uh you know fan vhs recorder <laughs> like grainy ass uh footage of this show and it's it's always kind of funny to me how brief the fan uh invasion is like it's just one guy who runs across the stage for like five seconds uh but then it kicks off like a whole sort of jokey version of antelope afterwards where they just uh they keep referencing it and referencing their drum tech who was the one who chased him off the stage Don't let Karini get you. 
this is an example again of you know if we want to compare the compare fish and the dead where in this spot you feel like you know the dead again is usually playing a song like stella blue or morning dew i guess if they're gonna they might also be playing a chuck berry song in this slot i guess often but you know you <laughs> my point is being that they will often end a set with like a more dramatic uh set closer and run like an antelope i mean there's really no analog to that song in dead history i mean it's i mean it's it's often a chance like for i mean i feel like the tr- i haven't heard a ton of run like run like an antelopes because it's not really like one of my favorite fish songs to be totally honest but like does he often improvise that story that he that he'll tell in this song like in because uh, like i've heard run like an right. antelope story like versions like where he'll like talk a lot during like like the build up to the song, like, is that often no, improvised? No, like they uh, or like is that yeah? It, is that usually it's the a same? song that has a lot of room for adding in sort of self-referential stuff like this. Uh, but this is a version that gets pretty wacky with that stuff, <laughs> where it's like Fisherman and Trey doing sort of like a back and forth routine, right? About the uh, about Karini, the drum tech, and uh, whether people should go on stage or not. So, yeah, I mean, this is like a notable version of right. Antelope because it has it's a song with like three or four different distinct sections, and each each section of this particular version uh, has like a little something extra thrown in, whether it's sort of the witty banter or sort of the start stop stuff that happens at the end. Uh, but it's like it's a pretty amazing version, and it's like it really brings out like the sense of humor that you get from a fish show, which is not something you get from a lot of dead shows. I think like dead shows seem to be very serious most of the time, other than, you know, sort of the tuning banter that you'll get on occasion. Uh, but this is a definitely an example of fish, like, you know, building up an in joke in real time (laughs) as the song goes on, uh, referencing something that just happened, uh, in the room. And then that will continue into the encore, obviously, where they play Carini. And this is like one of my favorite live songs, usually. This has always been like, wait, hold on. This continues into the encore, obviously, where they play Carini. And Carini uh, is always like a great song for me to hear live. And it's not really like, and we were talking earlier about like, I guess, the songwriting gap between Fish and The Grateful Dead, because I, I would say, Hands down, the Grateful Dead and especially Hunter, uh, Garcia Hunter, like, like that's like one of the great songwriting partnerships in rock history. And even like We Are Barlow is like another, I, th- I mean, they've written like a lot of great songs as well. Um, and, you know, Fish has never written any songs that are like of that caliber, but they can also take a song like Carini, which really isn't much of a song, and turn it into just like a great live vehicle uh where it has this great kind of like led zeppelin-esque riff um that opens up into incredible jamming and i mean like for me like i'm gonna reference this show again like the 21797 like that version to me which i think was that the first time they played that song it must be close yeah i don't know if that's the debut but that's like because right, it was like a twenty minute version, right around the time they of that. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, it's not because like if it's not the first, it has to be one of the first because it sounds like a pretty embryonic 
version of it. Yeah, that is the first. Where yeah. They, like they play that riff a little bit and then it just turns into this like noise jam <laughs> where like Fish turns into like Sonic Youth right. for about 10 minutes. Um and by this time, you know, like this the version on uh on this album isn't nearly as like wild as that one. Um and it's continuing basically like the in joke from like run like an antelope. Um but it's like pretty fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a really fun encore. Well, that's also like at a time where it wasn't totally clear that Karini was a real song because <laughs> I mean the lyrics of the song are basically just like stuff that happened to them when they were in Europe. And like I think it's pretty much just like a tossed off sound check riff that they hit upon. So I remember like they played it a bunch in Europe and then they didn't play it at all in 1997 until the December 30th show. And I remember there was something where a fan asked Mike if they were ever going to play Carini, and he was like, no, that's not a real song. That was just something we did in Europe. So they didn't even consider it to be like an actual composition. <laughs> it was just like an in-joke. Uh, but of course, fish in-jokes tend to have legs, and now they've played it 111 times, according to Fishnet. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a weird song. It's basically a scrap of a song, but it's in you know, sort of a strange way it's opened up to becoming like a fish jam staple. And this is one of the shows that sort of made it like fish canon, I think. And then we go into Haley's Comet into Tweezer Reprise. And um, I don't know if you have anything about anything to say about Haley's Comet. I mean, I was just going to talk about Tweezer Reprise because, I mean, do you have anything to say about Haley's Comet? Well, I mean, I love Haley's Comet. Also a very fishy, fishy song. And uh, has a really interesting backstory. If you want to read about it, you should look up uh, Jesse Jarno's article about the guy that wrote it, Nancy. Uh, it's pretty interesting. But yeah, the Tweets of Reprise, I mean, any show worth its salt should end with a Tweezer Reprise. And it should be pointed out that they didn't even play Tweezer in the show, and yet they ended in Tweezer Reprise. <laughs> Well, I was gonna say because you know this is uh, this, and I guess this would be another example of like a tw- of a fish in joke. But like usually, they, you know, they play Tweezer, and then they'll play Tweezer Reprise after that. And oftentimes, it's in the same show. But sometimes they'll play Tweezer Reprise like many shows after playing right. Tweezer. And I was gonna actually ask about this because they start off the next night playing <laughs> Tweezer, right? So what's so like? What were they reprising with this Tweezer reprise? <laughs> it was not you know? it, it was a pre-prize, not a reprise. In fact, like so I they remember, weren't like I remember so my buddies were like my buddies all like uh called that they would open the next show with Tweezer. Uh because yeah, no, they just like I guess felt like it was a good way to cap off the show by playing Tweezer reprise. <laughs> Even though they hadn't played Tweezer yet. So that's just what we that's just what Fish does. We're just gonna like <laughs> Yeah. So and again, I mean, I, I mean, Tweezer Reprise to me is like one of the great kind of arena rock closers of all time. I mean, like the only comparison I can really make is to Cheap Trick because, like, when Cheap Trick would play, you know, they have Hello there, and then they have a song that they play at the end where they say, you know, they say Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, you know, are you ready to rock? They play that at the beginning, and then they play another song at the end which was, you know, that was the show, but it's time to go. So it's like two sort of bookend songs. <laughs> yeah. 
that's the only comparison I can really make to like someone having a song that seems written specifically to close a show. And like Tweezer Reprise doesn't always close shows, but like it's just such a like kick ass, overwhelming, great riff, get your ass out of your seat type song. And again, it's not even much of a song, it's just really just a riff. Um, but it just shows like how much this band has studied arena rock, uh, dynamics. You know, they went to the arena rock university and they came up with this song to like end a fucking arena rock show. And like, it does it perfectly. It's like they condensed it down to its purest essence. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, and the lights are always amazing for a tweezer reprise. It's just like the perfect way to, to send you off home. Right. Oh, it's the best. I love it. <laughs> and it's and it's a great way to end this episode. We'll have to That's right. Um So and I love that we talked about did we talk about Fish longer than any Grateful Dead show? Uh Is we're, that possible? we're close. We're yeah. close. We'll see. Once we add the music clips and it might it might go over it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, hey. We we had six episodes to talk about the dead and only one to talk about fish, so I well, feel like it's gonna, still it's still fair. Well, all you patient deadheads out there, don't fret because we're returning into the arms of the Grateful Dead in our next episode. We're going to be talking about Dick's Picks Volume Seven, not only returning to the arms of the Grateful Dead, but returning to the arms of the early seventies. Yeah, nineteen seventy-four, Dead. Yeah. yeah, man. This is September like 9th, Dick's, uh, and Dick's sweet spot. Yeah, so. I feel like after doing two Brent shows, they were like, Dick, just pick whatever shows you want. And he's like, I can't pick just one. So I'm going to do like the highlights of a three night run in England in 1974. And yeah, the first time out of America. We're we're leaving the States. For for Dick's picks. Yeah, I know. We'll have to polish up all of our uh, English jokes. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to it. And I hope you all enjoyed our excursion into fish. We're going to be doing this periodically, talking about non-dead music as a way to talk about the dead. Uh, right. Hopefully you found it as interesting as we do. So thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in a few weeks to talk about Dick's Picks Volume 7. All right. See you all soon. Thirty Six from the Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman and mastered by Matt Dwyer. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB.
What's up, everyone? It's Joe, and I'm the host of That's Awesome with Joe, a podcast on the newly formed Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. I talk with tons of your favorite artists, managers, touring personnel, and more. Most of the time we talk about music, but lots of the time we end up talking about something completely unrelated. We laugh a lot. We do a lot of really stupid things, but also some things that are really informative and interesting. Basically, it's a podcast that I think you should listen to. Obviously, I'm biased because it's my podcast, but I think I might be into it if I wasn't the host. Check it out at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.